Chapter Thirteen of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Some new acquaintances are introduced to the intelligent reader, connected with whom various pleasant matters are related appertaining to this history. Where's Oliver? said the Jew, rising with a menacing look. Where's the boy? The young thieves eyed their preceptor as if they were alarmed at his violence, and looked uneasily at each other, but they made no reply. "'What's become of the boy?' said the Jew, seizing the dodger tightly by the collar, and threatening him with horrid imprecations. "'Speak out, or I'll throttle you!' Mr. Fagin looked so very much in earnest that Charlie Bates, who deemed it prudent in all cases to be on the safe side, and who conceived it by no means improbable that it might be his turn to be throttled second, dropped upon his knees and raised a loud, well-sustained and continuous roar, something between a mad bull and a speaking-trumpet. "'Will you speak?' thundered the Jew, shaking the dodger so much that his keeping in the big coat at all seemed perfectly miraculous. "'Why, the traps have got him, and that's all about it,' said the dodger sullenly. "'Come, let go of me, will you?' And swinging himself at one jerk clean out of the big coat, which he left in the Jew's hands, the dodger snatched up the toasting-fork and made a pass at the merry old gentleman's waistcoat, which, if it had taken effect, would have let a little more merriment out than could have been easily replaced. The Jew stepped back in this emergency with more agility than could have been anticipated in a man of his apparent decrepitude, and seizing up the pot prepared to hurl it at his assailant's head. But Charlie Bates at this moment, calling his attention by a perfectly terrific howl, he suddenly altered its destination and flung it full at that young gentleman. "'Why, what the blazes is in the wind now?' growled a deep voice. "'Who pitched that ear at me? It's well as the beer and not the pot as hit me, or I'd have settled somebody. I might have knowed as nobody but an infernal rich plundering, thundering old Jew could afford to throw away any drink but water. And not that unless he'd done the river company every quarter. What's it all about, Fagin? Damn me if my neck handkerchief ain't lined with beer. Come in, you sneaking warmint. What are you stopping outside for, as if you was ashamed of your master? Come in. The man who growled out these words was a stoutly built fellow of about five-and-thirty, in a black velveteen coat, very soiled drab breeches, lace-up half-boots and grey cotton stockings which enclosed a bulky pair of legs, with large swelling calves, the kind of legs which in such costume always look in an unfinished and incomplete state without a set of fetters to garnish them. He had a brown hat on his head, and a dirty belcher handkerchief round his neck, with the long frayed ends of which he smeared the beer from his face as he spoke. He disclosed, when he had done so, a broad, heavy countenance, with a beard of three days' growth, and two scowling eyes, one of which displayed various particular symptoms, of having been recently damaged by a blow. "'Come in, dear here,' growled this engaging ruffian. A white shaggy dog with his face scratched and torn in twenty different places skulked into the room. "'Why didn't you come in afore?' said the man. "'You're getting too proud to owe me afore company, are you? Lie down!' This command was accompanied with a kick which sent the animal to the other end of the room. He appeared well used to it, however, for he coiled himself up in a corner very quietly, without uttering a sound, and winking his very ill-looking eyes twenty times a minute, appeared to occupy himself in taking a survey of the apartment. "'What are you up to? Ill-treating the boys, you covetous, avaricious, insatiable old fence,' said the man, seating himself deliberately. 
I wonder they don't murder you. I would if I was them. If I'd been your apprentice, I'd have done it long ago. And now I couldn't have sold you afterwards for your fit for nothing but keeping as a curiosity of ugliness in a glass bottle. And I suppose they don't blow glass bottles large enough. Hush, hush, Mr. Sykes, said the Jew, trembling. Don't speak so loud. None of your mistering, replied the ruffian. You always mean mischief when you come to that. You know my name. Out with it. I shan't disgrace it when the time comes. Well, well then, Bill Sykes, said the Jew with abject humility. You seem out of humour, Bill. Perhaps I am, replied Sykes. I should think you was rather out of sorts, too, unless you mean as little arm when you throw pewter pots about, as you do when you blab and— Are you mad? said the Jew, catching the man by the sleeve and pointing towards the boys. Mr. Sykes contented himself with tying an imaginary knot under his left ear, and jerking his head over on the right shoulder, a piece of dumb show which the Jew appeared to understand perfectly. He then, in cant terms with which his whole conversation was plentifully besprinkled, but which would be quite unintelligible if they were recorded here, demanded a glass of liquor. "'Now mind you don't poison it,' said Mr. Sykes, laying his hat upon the table. This was said in jest, but if the speaker could have seen the evil leer with which the Jew bit his pale lip as he turned round to the cupboard, he might have thought the caution not wholly unnecessary, or the wish, at all events, to improve upon the distiller's ingenuity not very far from the old gentleman's merry heart. After swallowing two or three glasses of spirits, Mr. Sykes condescended to take some notice of the young gentleman, which gracious act led to a conversation in which the cause and manner of Oliver's capture were circumstantially detailed, with such alterations and improvements on the truth as to the dodger appeared most advisable under the circumstances. "'I'm afraid,' said the Jew, "'that he may say something which will get us into trouble.' "'That's very likely,' returned Sykes, with a malicious grin. "'You're blowed upon Fagin.' "'And I'm afraid, you see,' added the Jew, speaking as if he had not noticed the interruption, and regarding the other closely as he did so, "'I'm afraid that if the game was up with us, it might be up with a good many more, and that it would come out rather worse for you than it would for me, my dear.' The man started and turned round upon the Jew but the old gentleman's shoulders were shrugged up to his ears, and his eyes were vacantly staring on the opposite wall. There was a long pause. Every member of the respectable coterie appeared plunged in his own reflections, not excepting the dog, who, by a certain malicious licking of his lips, seemed to be meditating an attack upon the legs of the first gentleman or lady he might encounter in the streets when he went out. "'Somebody must find out what's been done at the office.' said Mr. Sykes, in a much lower tone than he had taken since he came in. The Jew nodded assent. "'If he has impeached and is committed, there's no fear till he comes out again,' said Mr. Sykes. "'And then he must be taken care on. You must get hold of him somehow.' Again the Jew nodded. The prudence of this line of action, indeed, was obvious, but unfortunately there was one very strong objection to its being adopted. This was that the Dodger and Charlie Bates and Fagan and Mr. William Sykes happened one and all to entertain a violent and deeply rooted antipathy to going near a police office, on any ground or pretext whatever. How long they might have sat and looked at each other in a state of uncertainty not the most pleasant of its kind, it is difficult to guess. It is not necessary to make any guesses on the subject, however, for the sudden entrance of the two young ladies whom Oliver had seen on a former occasion caused the conversation to flow afresh. "'The very thing,' said the Jew. Bet will go, won't you, my dear?' "'Where's?' inquired the young lady. 
"'Only just up to the office, my dear,' said the Jew coaxingly. It is due to the young lady to say that she did not positively affirm that she would not, but that she merely expressed an emphatic and earnest desire to be blessed if she would, a polite and delicate evasion of the request, which shows the young lady to have been possessed of that natural good breeding which cannot bear to inflict upon a fellow-creature the pain of a direct and pointed refusal. The Jew's countenance fell. He turned from this young lady, who was gaily, not to say gorgeously, attired, in a red gown, green boots, and yellow curl-papers, to the other female. "'Nancy, my dear,' said the Jew, in a soothing manner, "'what do you say?' "'That I won't do, so it's no use to try it on, Fagin,' replied Nancy. "'What do you mean by that?' said Mr. Sykes, looking up in a surly manner. "'What I say, Bill,' replied the lady, collectedly. "'Well, you're just the very person for it reasoned Mr. Sykes. Nobody about here knows anything of you. And as I don't want him to, neither, replied Nancy in the same composed manner, it's rather more no than yes with me, Bill. She'll go, Fagin, said Sykes. No, she won't, Fagin, said Nancy. Yes, she will, Fagin, said Sykes. And Mr. Sykes was right. By dint of alternate threats, promises, and bribes, the lady in question was ultimately prevailed upon to undertake the commission. She was not indeed withheld by the same considerations as her agreeable friend, for having recently removed into the neighbourhood of Fieldane from the remote but genteel suburb of Ratcliffe, she was not under the same apprehension of being recognised by any of her numerous acquaintances. Accordingly, with a clean white apron tied over her gown and her curl-papers tucked up under a straw bonnet, both articles of dress being provided from the Jew's inexhaustible stock, Miss Nancy prepared to issue forth on her errand. "'Stop a minute, my dear,' said the Jew, producing a little covered basket. "'Carry that in one hand. It looks more respectable, my dear.' "'Give it a door-key to carry a t'other one, Fagin,' said Sykes. "'It looks real and genuine-like.' "'Yes, yes, my dear, so it does,' said the Jew, hanging a large street-door-key on the forefinger of the young lady's right hand. "'There, very good, very good indeed, my dear,' said the Jew, rubbing his hands. "'How, my brother, my poor, dear, sweet, innocent little brother!' exclaimed Nancy, bursting into tears, and wringing the little basket and the street-door key in an agony of distress. "'What's become of them? Where have they taken him to? Oh, do have pity and tell me what's been done with the dear boy, gentlemen. Do, gentlemen, if you please, gentlemen!' Having uttered those words in a most lamentable and heart-broken tone, to the immeasurable delight of our hearers, Miss Nancy paused, winked to the company, nodded smilingly round, and disappeared. "'Ah, she's a clever girl, my dears,' said the Jew, turning round to his young friends, and shaking his head gravely, as if in mute admonition to them to follow the bright example they had just beheld. "'She's an honour to her sex, said Mr. Sykes, filling his glass, and smiting the table with his enormous fist. "'Is her elf, I'm wishing they was all like her.' While these and many other encomiums were being passed on the accomplished Nancy, that young lady made the best of her way to the police office, whither, notwithstanding a little natural timidity, consequent upon walking through the streets alone and unprotected, she arrived in perfect safety shortly afterwards. Entering by the back way, she tapped softly with the key at one of the cell doors and listened. There was no sound within, so she coughed and listened again. Still there was no reply, so she spoke. "'Nolly, dear,' murmured Nancy in a gentle voice. "'Nolly!' There was nobody inside but a miserable, shoeless criminal, 
who had been taken up for playing the flute, and who, the offence against society having been clearly proved, had been very properly committed by Mr. Fang to the House of Correction for one month, with the appropriate and amusing remark that since he had so much breath to spare, it would be more wholesomely expended on the treadmill than in a musical instrument. He made no answer, being occupied mentally bewailing the loss of the flute, which had been confiscated for the use of the county. So Nancy passed on to the next cell and knocked there. "'Well?' cried a faint and feeble voice. "'Is there a little boy here?' inquired Nancy with a preliminary sob. "'No,' replied the voice. "'God forbid!' This was a vagrant of sixty-five who was going to prison for not playing the flute, or, in other words, for begging in the streets and doing nothing for his livelihood. In the next cell was another man, who was going to the same prison for hawking tin saucepans without licence, thereby doing something for his living in defiance of the stamp office. But as neither of these criminals answered to the name of Oliver or knew anything about him, Nancy made straight up to the bluff officer in the striped waistcoat, and with the most piteous wailings and lamentations rendered more piteous by a prompt and efficient use of the street-door key and the little basket, demanded her own dear brother. "'I haven't got him, my dear,' said the old man. "'Where is he?' screamed Nancy in a distracted manner. "'Why, the gentleman's got him,' replied the officer. "'What gentleman? Oh, gracious heavens, what gentleman?' exclaimed Nancy. In reply to this incoherent questioning, the old man informed the deeply affected sister that Oliver had been taken ill in the office, and discharged in consequence of a witness having proved the robbery to have been committed by another boy not in custody, and that the prosecutor had carried him away in an insensible condition to his own residence, of and concerning which all the informant knew was that it was somewhere in Pentonville, he having heard the word mentioned in the directions to the coachman. In a dreadful state of doubt and uncertainty the agonised young woman staggered to the gate, and then, exchanging her faltering walk for a swift run, returned by the most devious and complicated route she could think of, to the domicile of the Jew. Mr. Bill Sykes no sooner heard the account of the expedition delivered than he very hastily called up the white dog, and, putting on his hat, expeditiously departed, without devoting any time to the formality of wishing the company good morning. "'We must know where he is, my dears. He must be found,' said the Jew, greatly excited. "'Charlie, do nothing but skulk about till you bring home some news of him. "'Nancy, my dear, I must have him found. "'I trust to you, my dear, and to you and the awful dodger for everything. "'Stay, stay,' added the Jew, unlocking the drawer with a shaking hand. "'There's money, my dears. I shall shut up this shop to-night. "'You'll know where to find me. "'Don't stop here a minute, not an instant, my dears.' With these words he pushed them from the room, and carefully double-locking and barring the door behind them, drew from its place of concealment the box which he had unintentionally disclosed to Oliver. Then he hastily proceeded to dispose of the watches and jewellery beneath his clothing. A rap at the door startled him in his occupation. "'Who's there?' he cried in a shrill tone. "'Me,' replied the voice of the dodger through the keyhole. "'What now?' cried the Jew impatiently. "'Is you to be kidnapped to the other ken, Nancy says?' inquired the dodger. "'Yes,' replied the Jew, "'wherever she lays hands on him. Find him, find him out, that's all. I shall know what to do next. Never fear.' The boy murmured a reply of intelligence, and hurried downstairs after his companions. "'He is not Pete so far,' said the Jew, as he pursued his occupation. "'If he means to blab us among his new friends, we may stop his mouth yet.' 
End of chapter 13《Chapter Fourteen of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Comprising further particulars of Oliver's stay at Mr. Brownlow's, with a remarkable prediction which one Mr. Grimwig uttered concerning him when he went out on an errand. Oliver, soon recovering from the fainting fit into which Mr. Brownlow's abrupt exclamation had thrown him, the subject of the picture was carefully avoided, both by the old gentleman and Mrs. Bedwin, in the conversation that ensued, which indeed bore no reference to Oliver's history or prospects, but was confined to such topics as might amuse without exciting him. He was still too weak to get up to breakfast, but when he came down into the housekeeper's room next day, his first act was to cast an eager glance at the wall, in the hope of again looking on the face of the beautiful lady. His expectations were disappointed, however, for the picture had been removed. "'Ah,' said the housekeeper, watching the direction of Oliver's eyes, "'it is gone, you see.' "'I see it is, ma'am,' replied Oliver. "'Why have they taken it away?' "'It has been taken down, child, because Mr. Brownlow said that as it seemed to worry you, perhaps it might prevent you getting well, you know,' rejoined the old lady. "'Oh, no, indeed. It didn't worry me, ma'am,' said Oliver. "'I like to see it.' I quite loved it." "'Well, well,' said the old lady good-humouredly, "'you get well as fast as ever you can, dear, and it shall be hung up again. There, I promise you that. Now let us talk about something else.' This was all the information Oliver could obtain about the picture at that time. As the old lady had been so kind to him in his illness, he endeavoured to think no more of the subject just then. So he listened attentively to a great many stories she told him, about an amiable and handsome daughter of hers, who was married to an amiable and handsome man and lived in the country, and about a son who was a clerk to a merchant in the West Indies, and who was also such a good young man and wrote such dutiful letters home four times a year, that it brought tears into her eyes to talk about them. When the old lady had expatiated a long time on the excellences of her children, and the merits of her kind good husband besides, who had been dead and gone, poor dear soul, just six and twenty years, it was time to have tea. After tea she began to teach Oliver cribbage, which he learnt as quickly as she could teach, and at which game they played with great interest and gravity, until it was time for the invalid to have some warm wine and water with a slice of dry toast, and then to go cosily to bed. They were happy days, those of Oliver's recovery. Everything was so quiet and neat and orderly, everybody so kind and gentle, that after the noise and turbulence in the midst of which he had always lived, it seemed like heaven itself. He was no sooner strong enough to put his clothes on properly than Mr. Brownlow caused a complete new suit and a new cap and a new pair of shoes to be provided for him. As Oliver was told that he might do what he liked with the old clothes, he gave them to a servant who had been very kind to him, and asked her to sell them to a Jew, and keep the money for herself. This she very readily did, and as Oliver looked out of the parlour window and saw the Jew roll them up in his bag and walk away, he felt quite delighted to think that they were safely gone, and that there was now no possible danger of his ever being able to wear them again. They were sad rags, to tell the truth and Oliver had never had a new suit before. One evening about a week after the affair of the picture, as he was sitting talking to Mrs. Bedwin, there came a message down from Mr. Brownlow, 
that if Oliver Twist felt pretty well he would like to see him in his study and talk to him a little while. "'Bless us and save us! Wash your hands and let me part your hair nicely for you, child,' said Mrs. Bedwin. "'Dear heart alive, if we had known he would have asked for you, we would have put you in a clean collar and made you as smart as sixpence.' Oliver did as the old lady bade him, and although she lamented grievously meanwhile that there was not even time to crimp the little frill that bordered his shirt-collar, he looked so delicate and handsome, despite that important personal advantage, that she went so far as to say, looking at him with great complacency from head to foot, that she really didn't think it would have been possible on the longest notice to have made much difference in him for the better. Thus encouraged, Oliver tapped at the study door. On Mr. Brownlow calling him to come in, he found himself in a little back room, quite full of books, with a window looking into some pleasant little gardens. There was a table drawn up before the window at which Mr. Brownlow was seated reading. When he saw Oliver, he pushed the book away from him and told him to come near the table and sit down. Oliver complied, marvelling where the people could be found to read such a great number of books as seemed to be written to make the world wiser which is still a marvel to more experienced people than Oliver Twist, every day of their lives. "'There are a great many books, are there not, my boy?' said Mr. Brownlow, observing the curiosity with which Oliver surveyed the shelves that reached from the floor to the ceiling. "'A great number, sir,' replied Oliver. "'I never saw so many.' "'You shall read them if you behave well,' said the old gentleman kindly. "'And you will like that better than looking at the outsides, that is, in some cases.' because there are books of which the backs and covers are by far the best parts. "'I suppose they are those heavy ones, sir,' said Oliver, pointing to some large quartos, with a good deal of gilding about the binding. "'Not always those,' said the old gentleman, patting Oliver on the head and smiling as he did so. "'There are other equally heavy ones, though of a much smaller size. How would you like to grow up a clever man and write books, eh?' "'I think I would rather read them, sir,' replied Oliver. "'What? Wouldn't you like to be a book-writer?' said the old gentleman. Oliver considered a little while, and at last said he should think it would be a much better thing to be a bookseller, upon which the old gentleman laughed heartily, and declared he had said a very good thing, which Oliver felt glad to have done, though he by no means knew what it was. "'Well, well,' said the old gentleman, composing his features, "'don't be afraid.' We won't make an author of you while there's an honest trade to be learnt, nor brick-making to turn to." "'Thank you, sir,' said Oliver. At the earnest manner of his reply the old gentleman laughed again, and said something about a curious instinct which Oliver, not understanding, paid no very great attention to. "'Now,' said Mr. Brownlow, speaking, if possible, in a kinder, but at the same time in a much more serious manner than Oliver had ever known him assume yet, "'I want you to pay great attention, my boy.' to what I am going to say. I shall talk to you without any reserve, because I am sure you are well able to understand me, as many older persons would be." "'Oh, don't tell me you are going to send me away, sir, pray!' exclaimed Oliver, alarmed at the serious tone of the old gentleman's commencement. "'Don't turn me out of doors to wander the streets again. Let me stay here and be a servant. Don't send me back to the wretched place I came from. Have mercy upon a poor boy, sir!' "'My dear child,' said the old gentleman, moved by the warmth of Oliver's sudden appeal, you need not be afraid of my deserting you, unless you give me cause." "'I never, never will, sir,' interposed Oliver. "'I hope not,' rejoined the old gentleman. "'I do not think you ever will. 
I have been deceived before in the objects whom I have endeavoured to benefit, but I feel strongly disposed to trust you nevertheless, and I am more interested in your behalf than I can well account for even to myself. The persons on whom I have bestowed my dearest love lie deep in their graves, but although the happiness and delight of my life lie buried there too, I have not made a coffin of my heart and sealed it up for ever on my best affections. Deep affliction has but strengthened and refined them." As the old gentleman said this in a low voice, more to himself than to his companion, and as he remained silent for a short time afterwards, Oliver sat quite still. "'Well, well,' said the old gentleman at length, in a more cheerful tone, "'I only say this because you have a young heart, and knowing that I have suffered great pain and sorrow, you will be more careful perhaps not to wound me again. You say you are an orphan, without a friend in the world. All the inquiries I have been able to make confirm the statement. Let me hear your story, where you came from, who brought you up, and how you got into the company in which I found you. Speak the truth, and you shall not be friendless while I live.' Oliver Sobs checked his utterance for some minutes. When he was on the point of beginning to relate how he had been brought up at the farm and carried to the workhouse by Mr. Bumble, a peculiarly impatient little double knock was heard at the street door, and the servant, running upstairs, announced Mr. Grimwig. "'Is he coming up?' inquired Mr. Brownlow. "'Yes, sir,' replied the servant. He asked if there were any muffins in the house, and, when I told him yes, he said he had come to tea. Mr. Brownlow smiled, and, turning to Oliver, said that Mr. Grimwig was an old friend of his, and he must not mind his being a little rough in his manners, for he was a worthy creature at bottom, as he had reason to know. "'Shall I go downstairs, sir?' inquired Oliver. "'No,' replied Mr. Brownlow. "'I would rather you remained here.' At this moment there walked into the room, supporting himself by a thick stick, a stout old gentleman, rather lame in one leg, who was dressed in a blue coat, striped waistcoat, nankeen breeches and gaiters, and a broad-brimmed white hat with the sides turned up with green. A very small plaited shirt-frill stuck out from his waistcoat, and a very long steel watch-chain with nothing but a key at the end dangled loosely below it. The ends of his white neckerchief were twisted into a ball about the size of an orange. The variety of shapes into which his countenance was twisted defied description. He had a manner of screwing his head on one side when he spoke, and of looking out of the corners of his eyes at the same time, which irresistibly reminded the beholder of a parrot. In this attitude he fixed himself the moment he made his appearance, and, holding out a small piece of orange-peel at arm's length, exclaimed in a growling, discontented voice, "'Look here! Do you see this? Isn't it a most wonderful and extraordinary thing that I can't call it a man's house, but I find a piece of this poor surgeon's friend on the staircase. I've been lamed at orange peel once, and I know orange peel will be my death, or I'll be content to eat my own head, sir." This was the handsome offer with which Mr. Grimwig backed and confirmed nearly every assertion he made, and it was the more singular in his case, because even admitting for the sake of argument the possibility of scientific improvements being brought to that pass which will enable a gentleman to eat his own head in the event of his being so disposed, Mr. Grimwig's head was such a particularly large one that the most sanguine man alive could hardly entertain a hope of being able to get through it at a sitting, to put entirely out of the question a very thick coating of powder. "'I'll eat my head, sir,' repeated Mr. Grimwig, striking his stick upon the ground. Hello, what's that?' looking at Oliver and retreating a pace or two. 
"'This is young Oliver Twist, whom we were speaking about,' said Mr. Brownlow. Oliver bowed. "'You don't mean to say that's the boy who had the fever, I hope,' said Mr. Grimwig, recoiling a little more. "'Wait a minute. Don't speak. Stop,' continued Mr. Grimwig abruptly, losing all dread of the fever in his triumph at the discovery. "'That's the boy who had the orange. If that's not the boy who had the orange and threw this bit of peel upon the staircase, I'll eat my head. And his too.' "'No, no, he has not had one,' said Mr. Brownlow, laughing. "'Come, put down your hat and speak to my young friend.' "'I feel strongly on the subject, sir,' said the irritable old gentleman, drawing off his gloves. "'There's always more or less orange peel on the pavement in our street, and I know it's put there by the surgeon's boy at the corner. A young woman stumbled over a bit last night and fell against my garden railings. Directly she got up I saw her look towards his infernal red lamp with the pantomime light.' "'Don't go to him!' I called out of the window. "'He's an assassin, a man-trap!' "'So he is. If he's not—' Here the irascible old gentleman gave a great knock on the ground with a stick, which is always understood by his friends to imply the customary offer, whenever it was not expressed in words. Then, still keeping his stick in his hand, he sat down, and opening a double eyeglass which he wore attached to a broad black riband, took a view of Oliver who, seeing that he was the object of inspection, coloured and bowed again. "'That's the boy, is it?' said Mr. Grimwig at length. "'That's the boy,' replied Mr. Brownlow. "'How are you, boy?' said Mr. Grimwig. "'A great deal better, thank you, sir,' replied Oliver. Mr. Brownlow, seeming to apprehend that his singular friend was about to say something disagreeable, asked Oliver to step downstairs and tell Mrs. Bedwin they were ready for tea which, as he did not half like the visitor's manner, he was very happy to do. "'He's a nice-looking boy, is he not?' inquired Mr. Brownlow. "'I don't know,' replied Mr. Grimwick pettishly. "'Don't know?' "'No, I don't know. I never see any difference in boys. I only knew two sorts of boys, mealy boys and beef-faced boys.' "'And which is Oliver?' "'Mealy. I know a friend who has a beef-faced boy, a fine boy they call him, with a round head and red cheeks and glaring eyes, not a horrid boy, with a body and limbs that appear to be swelling out of the seams of his blue clothes, with the voice of a pilot and the appetite of a wolf. I know him, the wretch. Come, said Mr. Brownlow, these are not the characteristics of young Oliver Twist, so he needn't excite your wrath. They are not, replied Mr. Grimwig. He may have worse. Here Mr. Brownlow coughed impatiently which appeared to afford Mr. Grimwig the most exquisite delight. "'He may have worse, I say,' repeated Mr. Grimwig. "'Where does he come from? Who is he? What is he? He has had a fever. What of that? Fevers are not particular to good people, are they? Bad people have fevers sometimes, haven't they, eh? I knew a man who was hung in Jamaica for murdering his master. He had had a fever six times. He wasn't recommended to mercy on that account. Phew! Nonsense!' Now the fact was that in the inmost recesses of his own heart Mr. Grimwig was strongly disposed to admit that Oliver's appearance and manner were unusually prepossessing, but he had a strong appetite for contradiction, sharpened on this occasion by the finding of the orange-peel, and inwardly determining that no man should dictate to him whether a boy was well-looking or not, he had resolved from the first to oppose his friend. When Mr. Brownlow admitted that no one point of inquiry could yet return a satisfactory answer, and that he had postponed any investigation into Oliver's previous history until he thought the boy was strong enough to hear it, Mr. Grimwig chuckled maliciously, and he demanded with a sneer whether the housekeeper was in the habit of counting the plate at night, 
because if she didn't find a tablespoon or two missing some sunshiny morning, why, he would be content to—' and so forth. All this Mr. Brownlow, though himself somewhat of an impetuous gentleman, knowing his friend's peculiarities, bore with great good humour. As Mr. Grimwig at tea was graciously pleased to express his entire approval of the muffins, matters went on very smoothly, and Oliver, who made one of the party, began to feel more at ease than he had yet done in the fierce old gentleman's presence. "'And when are you going to hear a full, true, and particular account of the life and adventures of Oliver Twist?' asked Mr. Grimwig of Mr. Brownlow at the conclusion of the meal, looking sideways at Oliver as he resumed his subject. "'Tomorrow morning,' replied Mr. Brownlow. "'I would rather he was alone with me at the time. Come up to me tomorrow morning at ten o'clock, my dear.' "'Yes, sir,' replied Oliver. He answered with some hesitation, because he was confused by Mr. Grimwig's looking so hard at him. "'I'll tell you what,' whispered that gentleman to Mr. Brownlow. "'He won't come up to you to-morrow morning. I saw him hesitate. He's deceiving you, my good friend.' "'I'll swear he is not,' replied Mr. Brownlow warmly. "'If he is not,' said Mr. Grimwig, "'I'll—and down went the stick.' "'I'll answer for that boy's truth with my life,' said Mr. Brownlow, knocking the table. "'And I for his falsehood with my head,' rejoined Mr. Grimwig, knocking the table also. "'We shall see,' said Mr. Brownlow checking his rising anger. "'We will,' replied Mr. Grimwig, with a provoking smile. "'We will.' As fate would have it, Mrs. Bedwin chanced to bring in at this moment a small parcel of books, which Mr. Brownlow had that morning purchased of the identical bookstall-keeper, who was already figured in this history. Having laid them on the table, she prepared to leave the room. "'Stop the boy, Mrs. Bedwin,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'There is something to go back.' "'He is gone, sir.' replied Mrs. Bedwin. "'Call after him,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'It's particular. He's a poor man, and they are not paid for. There are some books to be taken back to.' The street door was opened, Oliver ran one way and the girl ran another, and Mrs. Bedwin stood on the step and screamed for the boy, but there was no boy in sight. Oliver and the girl returned in a breathless state to report that there was no tidings of him. "'Dear me, I am very sorry for that.' exclaimed Mr. Brownlow. I particularly wish those books to be returned to-night. "'Send Oliver with them,' said Mr. Grimwig, with an ironical smile. "'He will be sure to deliver them safely, you know.' "'Yes, do let me take them, if you please, sir,' said Oliver. "'I'll run all the way, sir.' The old gentleman was just going to say that Oliver should not go out on any account, when a most malicious cough from Mr. Grimwig determined him that he should, and that, by his prompt discharge of the commission, he should prove to him the injustice of his suspicions, on this head at least, at once. "'You shall go, my dear,' said the old gentleman. "'The books are on a chair by my table. Fetch them down.' Oliver, delighted to be of use, brought down the books under his arm in a great bustle, and waited, cap in hand, to hear what message he was to take. "'You are to say,' said Mr. Brownlow, glancing steadily at Grimwig, "'you are to say that you have brought those books back.' and that you have come to pay the four pound ten I owe him. This is a five pound note, so you will have to bring back ten shillings change." "'I won't be ten minutes, sir,' said Oliver eagerly. Having buttoned up the bank note in his jacket pocket, and placed the books carefully under his arm, he made a respectful bow and left the room. Mrs. Bedwin followed him to the street door, giving him many directions about the nearest way, and the name of the bookseller and the name of the street all of which Oliver said he clearly understood. 
having superadded many injunctions to be sure not to take cold the old lady at length permitted him to depart bless his sweet face said the old lady looking after him i can't bear somehow to let him go out of my sight at this moment oliver looked gaily round and nodded before he turned the corner the old lady smilingly returned his salutation and closing the door went back to her own room let me see he'll be back in twenty minutes at the longest said mr brownlow pulling out his watch and placing it on the table it will be dark by that time oh you really expect him to come back do you inquired mr grimwig don't you asked mr brownlow smiling the spirit of contradiction was strong in mr grimwig's breast at the moment and it was rendered stronger by his friend's confident smile no he said smiting the table with his fist i do not the boy has a new suit of clothes on his back and a set of valuable books under his arm and a five-pound note in his pocket he'll join his old friends the thieves and laugh at you if ever that boy returns to this house sir i'll eat my head with these words he drew his chair closer to the table and there the two friends sat in silent expectation the watch between them it is worthy to remark as illustrating the importance we attach to our own judgments and the pride with which we put forth our most rash and hasty conclusions that although mr grimwig was not by any means a bad-hearted man and though he would have been unfeignedly sorry to see his respected friend duped and deceived he really did most earnestly and strongly hope at that moment that Oliver Twist might not come back. It grew so dark that the figures on the dial-plate were scarcely discernible, but there the two old gentlemen continued to sit in silence with the watch between them. End of chapter 14this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Showing how very fond of Oliver Twist the merry old Jew and Miss Nancy were. In the obscure parlour of a low public house in the filthiest part of Little Saffron Hill, a dark and gloomy den where a flaring gaslight burnt all day in the winter time, and where no ray of sun ever shone in the summer there sat brooding over a little pewter measure and a small glass strongly impregnated with the smell of liquor a man in a velveteen coat drab shorts half-boots and stockings whom even by that dim light no experienced agent of the police would have hesitated to recognize as mr william sykes at his feet sat a white-coated red-eyed dog who occupied himself alternately in winking at his master with both eyes at the same time and licking a large fresh cut on one side of his mouth which appeared to be the result of some recent conflict keep quiet you warmint keep quiet said mr sykes suddenly breaking silence whether his meditations were so intense as to be disturbed by the dog's winking or whether his feelings were so wrought upon by his reflections that they required all the relief derivable from kicking an unoffending animal to allay them is matter for argument and consideration whatever was the cause the effect was a kick and a curse bestowed upon the dog simultaneously dogs are not generally apt to revenge injuries inflicted upon them by their masters but mr sykes dog having faults of temper in common with his owner and labouring perhaps at this moment under a powerful sense of injury made no more ado but at once fixed his teeth into one of the half-boots 
having given it a hearty shake he retired growling under a form just escaping the pewter measure which mr sykes levelled at his head you would would you said sykes seizing the poker in one hand and deliberately opening with the other a large clasp-knife which he drew from his pocket come here you bone devil come here do you hear the dog no doubt heard because mr sykes spoke in the very harshest key of a very harsh voice but appearing to entertain some unaccountable objection to having his throat cut he remained where he was and growled more fiercely than before at the same time grasping the end of the poker between his teeth and biting at it like a wild beast this resistance only infuriated mr sykes the more who dropping on his knees began to assail the animal most furiously the dog jumped from right to left and from left to right snapping growling and barking the man thrust and swore and struck and blasphemed and the struggle was reaching a most critical point for one or other when the door suddenly opening the dog darted out leaving bill sykes with the poker and the clasp-knife in his hands there must always be two parties to a quarrel says the old adage mr sykes being disappointed of the dog's participation at once transferred his share of the quarrel to the newcomer what the devil do you come in between me and my dog for said sykes with a fierce gesture i didn't know my dear i didn't know replied fagin humbly for the jew was a newcomer didn't know you white-livered thief growled sykes couldn't you hear the noise not a sound of it as i'm a living man bill replied the jew oh no you hear nothing you don't retorted sykes with a fierce sneer sneaking in and out so as nobody hears how you come or go i wish you had been the dog fagin half a minute ago why inquired the jew with a forced smile cause the government as cares for the lives of such men as you as haven't half the pluck of curs lets a man kill a dog how he likes replied sykes shutting up the knife with a very expressive look that's why the jew rubbed his hands and sitting down at the table affected to laugh at the pleasantry of his friend he was obviously very ill at ease however grin away said sykes replacing the poker and surveying him with savage contempt grin away you'll never have the laugh at me though unless it's behind a nightcap i've got the upper hand over you fagin and damn me i'll keep it there if i go you go so take care of me well well my dear said the jew i know all that we we have a mutual interest bill a mutual interest huh said sykes as if he thought the interest lay rather more on the jew's side than on his well what have you got to say to me it's all passed safe through the melting pot replied fagin and this is your share it's rather more than it ought to be my dear but as i know you'll do me a good turn another time and stow that gammon interposed the robber impatiently where is it and over yes yes bill give me time give me time replied the jew soothingly here it is old safe as he spoke he drew forth an old cotton handkerchief from his breast and untying a large knot in one corner produced a small brown paper packet sykes snatching it from him hastily opened it and proceeded to count the sovereigns it contained this is all is it inquired sykes all replied the jew you haven't opened the parcel and swallowed one or two as you come along have you inquired sykes suspiciously 
Don't put on an injured look at the question. You've done it many a time. Jerk the tinkler. These words in plain English conveyed an injunction to ring the bell. It was answered by another Jew, younger than Fagin, but nearly as vile and repulsive in appearance. Bill Sykes merely pointed to the empty measure. The Jew, perfectly understanding the hint, retired to fill it, previously exchanging a remarkable look with Fagin, who raised his eyes for an instant, as if in expectation of it, and shook his head in reply so slightly that the action would have been almost imperceptible to an observant third person. It was lost upon Sykes, who was stooping at the moment to tie the boot-lace which the dog had torn. Possibly if he had observed the brief interchange of signals he might have thought that it boded no good to him. "'Is anybody here, Barney?' inquired Fagin, speaking now that Sykes was looking on, without raising his eyes from the ground. "'Not a soul,' replied Barney, whose words, whether they came from the heart or not, made their way through the nose. "'Nobody,' inquired Fagin, in a tone of surprise, which perhaps might mean that Barney was at liberty to tell the truth. "'Nobody but Miss Dancy,' replied Barney. "'Nancy!' exclaimed Sykes. "'Where? Strike me blind if I don't honour that there girl for her native talents!' "'She's been having a plate of boiled beef at the bar,' replied Barney. "'Send her here,' said Sykes, pouring out a glass of liquor. "'Send her here!' Barney looked timidly at Fagin, as if for permission. The Jew remaining silent and not lifting his eyes from the ground, he retired and presently returned ushering in Nancy who was decorated with a bonnet, apron, basket, and street-door key complete. "'You are on the scent, are you, Nancy?' inquired Sykes, proffering the glass. "'Yes, I am, Bill,' replied the young lady, disposing of its contents. "'And tired enough of it I am, too. The young brat's been ill and confined to the crib, and—' "'Ah, Nancy, dear,' said Fagin, looking up. Now, whether a peculiar contraction of the Jew's red eyebrows and a half-closing of his deeply set eyes warned Miss Nancy that she was disposed to be too communicative, is not a matter of much importance. The fact is all we care for here, and the fact is that she suddenly checked herself and, with several gracious smiles upon Mr. Sykes, turned the conversation to other matters. In about ten minutes' time Mr. Fagin was seized with a fit of coughing, upon which Nancy pulled her shawl over her shoulders and declared it was time to go. Mr. Sykes, finding that he was walking a short part of her way himself, expressed his intention of accompanying her, and they went away together, followed at a little distance, by the dog who slunk out of a back yard as soon as his master was out of sight. The Jew thrust his head out of the room door when Sykes had left it, looked after him as he walked up the passage, shook his clenched fist, muttered a deep curse, and then, with a horrible grin, reseated himself at the table where he was soon deeply absorbed in the interesting pages of the hue and cry. Meanwhile, Oliver Twist, little dreaming that he was within so very short a distance of the merry old gentleman, was on his way to the bookstall. When he got into Clerkenwell he accidentally turned down a by-street which was not exactly in his way. But not discovering his mistake until he had got half-way down it, and knowing it must lead in the right direction, he did not think it worth while to turn back and so marched on as quickly as he could with the books under his arm. He was walking along thinking how happy and contented he ought to feel, and how much he would give for only one look at poor Dick, who, starved and beaten, might be weeping bitterly at that very moment, when he was startled by a young woman screaming out very loud, "'Oh, my dear brother!' 
and he had hardly looked up to see what the matter was when he was stopped by having a pair of arms thrown tight around his neck. "'Don't!' cried Oliver, struggling. "'Let go of me! Who is it? What are you stopping me for?' The only reply to this was a great number of loud lamentations from the young woman who had embraced him, and who had a little basket and a street-door key in her hand. "'Oh, my gracious!' said the young woman. "'I have found him! Oh, Oliver! Oliver! Oh, you naughty boy, to make me suffer such distress on your account! Come home, dear, come! Oh, I found him! Thank gracious goodness heavens, I found him!' With these incoherent exclamations the young woman burst into another fit of crying, and got so dreadfully hysterical that a couple of women who came up at that moment asked a butcher's boy with a shiny head of hair anointed with suet who was also looking on, whether he didn't think he had better run for the doctor, to which the butcher's boy, who appeared of a lounging, not to say indolent disposition, replied that he thought not. "'Oh, no, no, never mind,' said the young woman, grasping Oliver's hand. "'I'm better now. Come home directly, you cruel boy, come!' "'What's the matter, ma'am?' inquired one of the women. "'Oh, ma'am,' replied the young woman, "'he ran away near a month ago from his parents, who were hard-working and respectable people, and went and joined a set of thieves and bad characters, and almost broke his mother's heart.' "'Young wretch!' said one woman. "'Go home, you little brute!' said the other. "'I am not,' replied Oliver, gravely alarmed. "'I don't know her. I haven't any sister, or father and mother either. I'm an orphan. I live at Pentonville.' "'Only hear him how he braves it out!' cried the young woman. "'Why, it's Nancy!' exclaimed Oliver, who now saw her face for the first time, and started back in irrepressible astonishment. "'You see, he knows me!' cried Nancy, appealing to the bystanders. "'He can't help himself. Make him come home. There's good people, or he'll kill his dear mother and father and break my heart!' "'What the devil's this?' said a man, bursting out of a beer-shop, with a white dog at his heels. "'Young Oliver!' Come home to your poor mother, you young dog. Come home directly. I don't belong to them. I don't know them. Help! Help! cried Oliver, struggling in the man's powerful grasp. Help! repeated the man. Yes, I'll help you, you young rascal. What books are these? You've been stealing them, have you? Give them here. With these words the man tore the volumes from his grasp and struck him on the head. That's right cried a looker-on from a garret-window. That's the way of bringing him to his senses. To be sure, said a sleepy-faced carpenter, casting an approving look at the garret-window. It'll do him good, said the two women. And he shall have it too, rejoined the man, administering another blow and seizing Oliver by the collar. Come on, you young villain. Here, bull's-eye. Mind him, boy. Mind him. Weak with recent illness, stupefied by the blows and the suddenness of the attack, terrified by the fierce growling of the dog and the brutality of the man, overpowered by the conviction of the bystanders that he really was the hardened little wretch he was described to be. What could one poor child do? Darkness had set in. It was a low neighbourhood. No help was near. Resistance was useless. In another moment he was dragged into a labyrinth of dark, narrow courts and was forced along them at a pace which rendered the few cries he dared to give utterance to unintelligible. It was a little moment, indeed, whether they were intelligible or no, for there was nobody to care for them, had they been ever so plain. The gas-lamps were lighted, Mrs. Bedwin was waiting anxiously at the open door, the servant had run up the street twenty times to see if there were any traces of Oliver, 
and still the two old gentlemen sat perseveringly in the dark parlour with the watch between them. End of chapter 15《Chapter Sixteen of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. Relates what became of Oliver Twist after he had been claimed by Nancy. The narrow streets and courts at length terminated in a large open space, scattered about which were pens for beasts and other indications of a cattle market. Sykes slackened his pace when they reached this spot, the girl being quite unable to support any longer the rapid rate at which they had hitherto walked. Turning to Oliver, he roughly commanded him to take hold of Nancy's hand. "'Do you hear?' growled Sykes, as Oliver hesitated and looked round. They were in a dark corner, quite out of the track of passengers. Oliver saw but too plainly that resistance would be of no avail. He held out his hand, which Nancy clasped tight in hers. "'Give me the other,' said Sykes, seizing Oliver's unoccupied hand. "'Here, bull's-eye!' The dog looked up and growled. "'See here, boy,' said Sykes, putting the other hand to Oliver's throat. "'If he speaks ever so soft a word, hold him, do you mind?' The dog growled again, and, licking his lips, eyed Oliver as if he were anxious to attach himself to his windpipe without delay. "'He's as willing as a Christian. Strike me blind if he ain't.' said Sykes, regarding the animal with a kind of grim and ferocious approval. "'Now, you know what you've got to expect, master. So call away as quick as you like. The dog'll soon stop that game. Get on, young'un.' Bullseye wagged his tail in acknowledgment of this unusually endearing form of speech, and, giving vent to another admonitory growl for the benefit of Oliver, led the way onward. It was Smithfield that they were crossing, though it might have been Grosvenor Square for anything Oliver knew to the contrary. The night was dark and foggy. The lights in the shops could scarcely struggle through the heavy mists which thickened every moment and shrouded the streets and houses in gloom, rendering the strange place still stranger in Oliver's eyes, and making his uncertainty the more dismal and depressing. They had hurried on a few paces when a deep church-bell struck the hour. With its first stroke his two conductors stopped and turned their heads in the direction whence the sound proceeded. "'Eight o'clock, Bill,' said Nancy, when the bell ceased. "'What's the good of telling me that? I can hear it, can't I?' replied Sykes. "'I wonder whether they can hear it,' said Nancy. "'Of course they can,' replied Sykes. "'It was Bartlemy time when I was shopped, and there weren't a penny trumpet in the fair as I couldn't hear the squeaking on. After I was locked up for the night, the row and din outside made the thundering old jail so silent that I could almost have beat my brains out against the iron plates of the door." "'Poor fellows,' said Nancy, who still had her face turned towards the quarter in which the bell had sounded. "'Oh, Bill, such fine young chaps as them!' "'Yes, that's all you women think of,' answered Sykes. "'Fine young chaps. Well, they're as good as dead, so it don't much matter.' With his consolation Mr. Sykes appeared to repress a rising tendency to jealousy and, clasping Oliver's wrist more firmly, told him to step out again. "'Wait a minute,' said the girl. "'I wouldn't hurry by if it was you that was coming out to be young the next time eight o'clock struck, Bill. I'd walk round and round the place till I dropped, if the snow was on the ground and I hadn't a shawl to cover me.' "'And what good would that do?' inquired the unsentimental Mr. Sykes. "'Unless you could pitch over a file and twenty yards of good stout rope, you might as well be walking fifty mile off. 
or not walking at all for the good it would do me. Come on, don't stand preaching there. The girl burst into a laugh, drew her shawl more closely round her, and they walked away. But Oliver felt her hand tremble, and looking up in her face as they passed the gas lamp, saw that it had turned a deadly white. They walked on by little frequented and dirty ways for a full half hour, and meeting very few people, and those appearing from their looks, to hold much the same position in society as Mr. Sykes himself. At length they turned into a very filthy, narrow street, nearly full of old clothes-shops. The dog running forward, as if conscious that there was no further occasion for its keeping guard, stopped before the door of a shop that was closed and apparently untenanted. The house was in a ruinous condition, and on the door was nailed a board intimating that it was to be let, which looked as if it had hung there for many years. "'All right,' cried Sykes, glancing cautiously about. Nancy stooped below the shutters, and Oliver heard the sound of a bell. They crossed to the opposite side of the street, and stood for a few moments under a lamp. A noise, as if a sash window were gently raised, was heard, and soon afterwards the door softly opened. Mr. Sykes then seized the terrified boy by the collar with very little ceremony, and all three were quickly inside the house. The passage was perfectly dark. They waited while the person who had let them in chained and barred the door. "'Anybody here?' inquired Sykes. "'No,' replied a voice, which Oliver thought he had heard before. "'Is the old one here?' asked the robber. "'Yes,' replied the voice. "'And precious down in the mouth he has been. Won't he be glad to see you? Oh, no!' The style of this reply, as well as the voice which delivered it, seemed familiar to Oliver's ears, but it was impossible to distinguish even the form of the speaker in the darkness. "'Let's have a glim,' said Sykes, "'or we shall go breaking our necks or treading on the dog. We'll look after your legs if you do.' "'Stand still a moment and I'll get you one,' replied the voice. The receding footsteps of the speaker were heard, and, in another minute, the form of Mr. John Dawkins, otherwise the artful dodger, appeared. He bore in his right hand a tallow candle stuck in the end of a cleft stick. The young gentleman did not stop to bestow any other remark of recognition upon Oliver than a humorous grin but turning away beckoned the visitors to follow him down a flight of stairs. They crossed an empty kitchen, and opening the door of a low, earthy-smelling room, which seemed to have been built in a small backyard, were received with a shout of laughter. "'Oh, my wig! my wig!' cried Master Charlie Bates, from whose lungs the laughter had proceeded. "'Here he is! Oh, cry! Here he is! Oh, Fagin, look at him! Fagin, do look at him! I can't bear it! It's such a jolly game! I can't bear it! Hold me somebody while I laugh it out!' <laughs> With this irrepressible ebullition of mirth, Master Bates laid himself flat on the floor, and kicked convulsively for five minutes in an ecstasy of facetious joy. Then, jumping to his feet, he snatched the cleft stick from the dodger, and, advancing to Oliver, viewed him round and round while the Jew, taking off his nightcap, made a great number of low bows to the bewildered boy. The artful, meanwhile, who was of a rather saturnine disposition, and seldom gave way to merriment when it interfered with business, rifled Oliver's pockets with steady assiduity. "'Look at his togs, Fagin,' said Charlie, putting the light so close to his new jacket as nearly to set him on fire. "'Look at his togs! Superfine cloth and a heavy swell cut! Oh, by eye, what a game! And his books, too! Nothing but a gentleman, Fagin!' "'Delighted to see you looking so well, my dear,' said the Jew, bowing with mock humility. "'The artful shall give you another suit, my dear, for fear you should spoil that Sunday one. 
why didn't you write my dear and say you were coming we'd have got something warm for supper at this master bates roared again so loud that fagin himself relaxed and even the dodger smiled but as the artful drew forth the five-pound note at that instant it is doubtful whether the sally of the discovery awakened his merriment hello what's that inquired sykes stepping forward as the jew seized the note that's mine fagin no no my dear said the jew mine bill mine you shall have the books if that ain't mine said bill sykes putting on his hat with a determined air mine and nancy's that is i'll take the boy back again the jew started oliver started too though from a very different cause for he hoped that the dispute might really end in his being taken back come and over will you said sykes this is hardly fair bill hardly fair is it nancy inquired the jew fair or not fair retorted sykes and over i tell you do you think nancy and me has got nothing else to do with our precious time but to spend it scouting arthur and kidnapping every young boy as gets grabbed through you give it here you avaricious old skeleton give it here with this gentle remonstrance mr sykes plucked the note from between the jew's finger and thumb and looking the old man coolly in the face folded it up small and tied it in his neckerchief that's for our share of the trouble said sykes and not half enough neither you may keep the books if you're fond of reading if you ain't sell em they're very pretty said charley bates who with sundry grimaces had been affecting to read one of the volumes in question beautiful writing isn't it oliver at sight of the dismayed look with which oliver regarded his tormentors master bates who was blessed with a lively sense of the ludicrous fell into another ecstasy more boisterous than the first they belong to the old gentleman said oliver wringing his hands to the good kind old gentleman who took me into his house and had me nursed when i was near dying of the fever oh pray send them back send them back his books and money keep me here all my life long but pray pray send them back he'll think i stole them the old lady all of them who were so kind to me will think i stole them oh do have mercy upon me and send them back with these words which were uttered with all the energy of passionate grief oliver fell upon his knees at the jew's feet and beat his hands together in perfect desperation the boy's right remarked fagin looking covertly round and knitting his shaggy eyebrows into a hard knot you're right oliver you're right they will think you have stolen them <laughs> chuckled the jew rubbing his hands it couldn't have happened better if we had chosen our time course it couldn't replied sykes i know that directly i see them coming through clerkenwell with the books under his arm that's all right enough they're soft-hearted psalm singers that they wouldn't have taken him in at all and they'll ask no questions after him fear they should be obliged to prosecute and so get him lagged he's safe enough oliver had looked from one to the other while these words were being spoken as if he were bewildered and could scarcely understand what passed but when bill sykes concluded he jumped suddenly to his feet and tore wildly from the room uttering shrieks for help which made the bare old house echo to the roof keep back the dog bill cried nancy springing before the door and closing it as the jew and his two pupils darted out in pursuit keep back the dog he'll tear the boy to pieces serve him right cried sykes struggling to disengage himself from the girl's grasp stand off from me or i'll split your head against the wall i don't care for that bill i don't care for that screamed the girl struggling violently with the man the child shan't be torn down by the dog unless you kill me first shan't he said sykes setting his teeth i'll soon do that if you don't keep off 
The housebreaker flung the girl from him to the further end of the room, just as the Jew and the two boys returned, dragging Oliver among them. "'What's the matter here?' said Fagin, looking round. "'The girl's gone mad, I think,' replied Sykes savagely. "'No, she hasn't,' said Nancy, pale and breathless from the scuffle. "'No, she hasn't, Fagin. Don't think it.' "'Then keep quiet, will you?' said the Jew, with a threatening look. "'No, I won't do that neither,' replied Nancy, speaking very loud. "'Come, what do you think of that?' Mr. Fagin was sufficiently well acquainted with the manners and customs of that particular species of humanity to which Nancy belonged, to feel tolerably certain that it would be rather unsafe to prolong any conversation with her at present. With the view of diverting the attention of the company, he turned to Oliver. "'So you wanted to get away, my dear, did you?' said the Jew, taking up a jagged and knotted club which lay in a corner of the fireplace. Hey? Oliver made no reply, but he watched the Jew's motions and breathed quickly. "'Wanted to get assistance? Called for the police, did you?' sneered the Jew, catching the boy by the arm. "'We'll cure you of that, my young master!' The Jew inflicted a smart blow on Oliver's shoulder with the club, and was raising it for a second when the girl, rushing forward, wrested it from his hand. She flung it into the fire with a force that brought some of the glowing coals whirling out into the room. "'I won't stand by and see it done, Fagin,' cried the girl. "'You've got the boy, and what more would you have? Let him be, let him be, or I shall put that mark on some of you that will bring me to the gallows before my time.' The girl stamped her foot violently on the floor as she vented this threat, and with her lips compressed and her hands clenched, looked alternately at the Jew and the other robber, her face quite colourless from the passion of rage into which she had gradually worked herself. "'Why, Nancy,' said the Jew in a soothing tone, after a pause during which he and Mr. Sykes had stared at one another in a disconcerted manner, "'You—you're more clever than ever to-night. <laughs> My dear, you are acting beautifully.' "'Am I?' said the girl. "'Take care I don't ever do it. You'll be the worse for it, Fagin, if I do. And so I tell you in good time to keep clear of me." There is something about a roused woman, especially if she adds to all her other strong passions, the fierce impulses of recklessness and despair, which few men like to provoke. The Jew saw that it would be hopeless to effect any further mistake regarding the reality of Miss Nancy's rage, and shrinking involuntarily back a few paces, cast a glance half imploring and half cowardly at Sykes as if to hint that he was the fittest person to pursue the dialogue. Mr. Sykes, thus mutely appealed to, and possibly feeling his personal pride and influence interested in the immediate reduction of Miss Nancy to reason, gave utterance to about a couple of score of curses and threats, the rapid production of which reflected great credit on the fertility of his invention. As they produced no visible effect on the object against whom they were discharged, however, he resorted to more tangible arguments. "'What do you mean by this?' said Sykes, backing up the inquiry with a very common implication, concerning the most beautiful of human features, which, if it were heard above only once out of every fifty thousand times that it is uttered below, would render blindness as common a disorder as measles. "'What do you mean by it? Burn my body! Do you know who you are and what you are?' "'Oh, yes, I know all about it,' replied the girl, laughing hysterically and shaking her head from side to side with a poor assumption of indifference. "'Well, then, keep quiet,' rejoined Sykes, with a growl like that he was accustomed to use when addressing his dog, "'or I'll quiet you for a good long time to come.' The girl laughed again, even less composedly than before, and, darting a hasty look at Sykes, turned her face aside and bit her lip till the blood came. 
you're a nice one added sykes as he surveyed her with a contemptuous air to take up the humane and genteel side a pretty subject for the child as you call him to make a friend of god almighty help me i am cried the girl passionately and i wish i had been struck dead in the street or had changed places with them we passed so near to-night before i had lent a hand in bringing him here he's a thief a liar a devil all that's bad from this night forth isn't that enough for the old wretch without blows come come sykes said the jew appealing to him in a remonstratory tone and motioning towards the boys who were eagerly attentive to all that passed we must have civil words civil words bill civil words cried the girl whose passion was frightful to see civil words you villain yes you deserve em from me i thieved for you when i was a child not half as old as this pointing to oliver i have been in the same trade and in the same service for twelve years since don't you know it speak out don't you know it well well replied the jew with an attempt at pacification and if you have it's your living ay it is returned the girl not speaking but pouring out the words in one continuous and vehement scream it is my living and the cold wet dirty streets of my home and you're the wretch that drove me into them long ago and that'll keep me there day and night day and night till i die i shall do you a mischief interposed the jew goaded by these reproaches a mischief worse than that if you say much more the girl said nothing more but tearing her hair and dress in a transport of passion made such a rush at the jew as would probably have left signal marks of her revenge upon him had not her wrists been seized by sykes at the right moment upon which she made a few ineffectual struggles and fainted she's all right now said sykes laying her down in the corner she's uncommon strong in the arms when she's up in this way the jew wiped his forehead and smiled as if it were a relief to have the disturbance over but neither he nor sykes nor the dog nor the boys seemed to consider it in any other light than a common occurrence incidental to the business it's the worst of having to do with women said the jew replacing his club but they're clever and we can't get on in our line without them charlie shall all but to bed i suppose he'd better not wear his best clothes to-morrow fagin had he inquired charlie bates certainly not replied the jew reciprocating the grin with which charlie put the question master bates apparently much delighted with his commission took the cleft stick and led oliver to an adjacent kitchen where there were two or three beds on which he had slept before and here with many uncontrollable bursts of laughter he produced the identical old suit of clothes which oliver had so much congratulated himself upon leaving off at mr brownlow's and the accidental display of which to fagin by the jew who purchased them had been the very first clue received of his whereabouts put off the smart ones said charlie and i'll give them to fagin to take care of <laughs> what fun it is poor oliver unwillingly complied master bates rolling up the new clothes under his arm departed from the room leaving oliver in the dark and locking the door behind him the noise of charlie's laughter and the voice of miss betsy who opportunely arrived to throw water over her friend and perform other feminine offices for the promotion of her recovery might have kept many people awake under more happy circumstances than those in which oliver was placed but he was sick and weary and he soon fell sound asleep End of chapter 16chapter 17 of oliver twist by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tyg hines
Oliver's destiny, continuing unpropitious, brings a great man to London to injure his reputation. It is the custom on the stage in all good murderous melodramas to present the tragic and the comic scenes in as regular alternation as the layers of red and white in a side of streaky bacon. The hero sinks upon his straw bed, weighed down by fetters and misfortunes. In the next scene his faithful but unconscious squire regales the audience with a comic song. We behold with throbbing bosoms the heroine in the grasp of a proud and ruthless baron, her virtue and her life alike in danger, drawing forth her dagger to preserve the one at the cost of the other. And just as our expectations are wrought up to the highest pitch, a whistle is heard, and we are straightway transported to the great hall of the castle, where a grey-headed seneschal sings a funny chorus with a funnier body of vassals, who are free of all sorts of places, from church vaults to palaces and roam about in company carolling perpetually. Such changes appear absurd, but they are not so unnatural as they would seem at first sight. The transitions in real life from well-spread boards to death-beds, and from mourning-weeds to holiday garments, are not a whit less startling. Only there we are busy actors instead of passive lookers-on, which makes a vast difference. The actors in the mimic life of the theatre are blind to violent transitions and abrupt impulses of passion or feeling which presented before the eyes of mere spectators are at once condemned as outrageous and preposterous. As sudden shiftings of the scene and rapid changes of time and place are not only sanctioned in books by long usage, but are by many considered as the great art of authorship, an author's skill in his craft being by such critics chiefly estimated with relation to the dilemmas in which he leaves his characters at the end of every chapter, this brief introduction to the present one may perhaps be deemed unnecessary. If so, let it be considered a delicate intimation on the part of the historian that he is going back to the town in which Oliver Twist was born, the reader taking it for granted that there are good and substantial reasons for making the journey, or he would not be invited to proceed upon such an expedition. Mr. Bumble emerged at early morning from the workhouse gate, and walked with portly carriage and commanding steps up the high street. He was in the full bloom and pride of beadlehood. His cocked hat and coat were dazzling in the morning sun. He clutched his cane with the vigorous tenacity of health and power. Mr. Bumble always carried his head high, but this morning it was higher than usual. There was an abstraction in his eye, an elevation in his air, which might have warned an observant stranger that thoughts were passing in the beadle's mind too great for utterance. Mr. Bumble stopped not to converse with the small shopkeepers and others who spoke to him deferentially as he passed along. He merely returned their salutations with a wave of his hand, and relaxed not in his dignified pace, until he reached the farm where Mrs. Mann tended the infant paupers with parochial care. "'Drat that beadle!' said Mrs. Mann, hearing the well-known shaking at the garden gate. "'If it isn't him at this time in the morning! Look, Mr. Bumble, only think of its being you! Well, dear me, it is a pleasure this is! Come into the parlour, sir, please!' The first sentence was addressed to Susan and the exclamations of delight were uttered to Mr. Bumble, as the good lady unlocked the garden gate and showed him, with great attention and respect, into the house. Uh, "'Mrs. Mann,' said Mr. Bumble, not sitting upon or dropping himself into a seat, as any common jack and apes would, but letting himself gradually and slowly down into a chair. "'Mrs. Mann, ma'am, good morning.' "'Well, and good morning to you, sir,' replied Mrs. Mann, with many smiles, "'and hoping you find yourself well, sir.' 
so so mrs mann replied the beadle a parochial life is not a bed of roses mrs mann ah that it isn't indeed mr bumble rejoined the lady and all the infant paupers might have chorused the rejoinder with great propriety if they had heard it a parochial life ma'am continued mr bumble striking the table with his cane is a life of worrit and vexation and hardihood but all public characters as i say must suffer prosecution mrs mann not very well knowing what the beadle meant raised her hands with a look of sympathy and sighed ah you may well sigh mrs mann said the beadle finding she had done right mrs mann sighed again evidently to the satisfaction of the public character who repressing a complacent smile by looking sternly at his cocked hat said mrs mann i am going to london look mr bumble cried mrs mann starting back to london ma'am resumed the inflexible beadle by couch i and two paupers mrs mann a legal action is a coming on about a settlement and the board has appointed me and me mrs mann to depose to the matter before the quarter sessions at clerkenwell and i very much question added mr bumble drawing himself up whether the clerkenwell sessions will not find themselves at the wrong box before they have done with me oh you mustn't be too hard upon them sir said mrs mann coaxingly the clerkenwell sessions have brought it upon themselves ma'am replied mr bumble and if the clerkenwell sessions find that they come off rather worse than they expected the clerkenwell sessions have only themselves to thank there was so much determination and depth of purpose about the menacing manner in which mr bumble delivered himself of these words that mrs mann appeared quite awed by them at length she said you're going by coach sir i thought it was always usual to send them paupers in carts that's when they're ill mrs mann said the beadle we put the sick paupers into open carts in the rainy weather to prevent their taking cold oh said mrs mann the opposition coach contracts for these two and takes them cheap said mr bumble they are both in a very low state and we find it would come two pound cheaper to move em than to bury em that is if we can throw em upon another parish which i think we shall be able to do if they don't die upon the road to spite us <laughs> when mr bumble had laughed a little while his eyes again encountered the cocked hat and he became grave we are forgetting business ma'am said the beadle here's your parochial stipend for the month mr bumble produced some silver money rolled up in paper from his pocket-book and requested a receipt which mrs mann wrote it's very much blotted sir said the farmer of infants but it's formal enough i dare say thank you mr bumble sir i am very much obliged to you i'm sure mr bumble nodded blandly in acknowledgment of mrs mann's curtsey and inquired how the children were bless their dear little hearts said mrs mann with emotion they're as well as can be the dears of course except the two that died last week and little dick isn't that boy no better inquired mr bumble mrs mann shook her head he's a ill-conditioned wishes bad-disposed parochial child that said mr bumble angrily where is he i'll bring him to you in one minute sir replied mrs mann eh you dick after some calling dick was discovered having had his face put under the pump and dried upon mrs mann's gown he was led into the awful presence of mr bumble the beadle the child was pale and thin his cheeks were sunken and his eyes large and bright the scanty parish dress the livery of his misery hung loosely on his feeble body and his young limbs had wasted away like those of an old man such was the little being who stood trembling beneath mr bumble's glance 
not daring to lift his eyes from the floor and dreading even to hear the beadle's voice. "'Can't you look at the gentleman, you obstinate boy?' said Mrs. Mann. The child meekly raised his eyes and encountered those of Mr. Bumble. "'What's the matter with you, parochial Dick?' inquired Mr. Bumble, with well-timed jocularity. "'Nothing, sir,' said the child, faintly. "'I should think not,' said Mrs. Mann, who had, of course, laughed very much at Mr. Bumble's humour. "'You want for nothing, I'm sure.' "'I should like,' faltered the child. "'Hey, Jay,' interposed Mrs. Mann, "'I suppose you're going to say that you do want for something now. Why, you little wretch!' "'Stop, Mrs. Mann, stop,' said the beadle, raising his hand with a show of authority. "'Like what, sir? Eh?' "'I should like,' faltered the child, "'if somebody that can write would put a few words down for me on a piece of paper, and fold it up and seal it and keep it for me, after I am laid in the ground.' "'Why, what does the boy mean?' exclaimed Mr. Bumble on whom the earnest manner and wan aspect of the child had made some impression, accustomed as he was to such things. "'What do you mean, sir?' "'I should like,' said the child, "'to leave my dear love to poor Oliver Twist, and to let him know how often I have sat by myself and cried to think of his wandering about in the dark nights, with nobody to help him. And I should like to tell him,' said the child, pressing his small hands together, and speaking with great fervour that I was glad to die when I was very young, for perhaps if I had lived to be a man and had grown old, my little sister who was in heaven might forget me or be unlike me, and it would be much happier if we were both children there together." Mr. Bumble surveyed the little speaker from head to foot with indescribable astonishment, and turning to his companion said, "'They're all in one story, Mrs. Mann. That outdacious Oliver has demodulized them all.' "'I couldn't have believed it, sir,' said Mrs. Mann, holding up her hands and looking malignantly at Dick. "'I never see such a hardened little wretch.' "'Take him away, ma'am,' said the beadle imperiously. "'This must be stated to the board, Mrs. Mann.' "'I hope the gentleman will understand that it isn't my fault, sir,' said Mrs. Mann, whimpering pathetically. "'They shall understand that, ma'am. They shall be acquainted with the true state of the case,' said Mr. Bumble. "'There, take him away. I can't bear the sight on him.' Dick was immediately taken away and locked up in the coal cellar. Mr. Bumble, shortly afterwards, took himself off to prepare for his journey. At six o'clock next morning Mr. Bumble, having exchanged his cocked hat for a round one, and encased his person in a blue greatcoat with a cape to it, took his place on the outside of the coach accompanied by the criminals whose settlement was disputed, with whom in due course of time he arrived in London. He experienced no other crosses on the way than those which originated in the perverse behaviour of the two paupers, who persisted in shivering and complaining of the cold, in a manner which Mr. Bumble declared caused his teeth to chatter in his head and made him feel quite uncomfortable, although he had a great coat on. Having disposed of these evil-minded persons for the night, Mr. Bumble sat himself down in the house at which the coach stopped, and took a temperate dinner of steaks, oyster-sauce, and porter. Putting a glass of hot gin and water on the chimney-piece, he drew his chair to the fire, and with sundry moral reflections on the too prevalent sin of discontent and complaining, composed himself to read the paper. The very first paragraph upon which Mr. Bumble's eye rested was the following advertisement. Five guineas reward whereas a young boy named Oliver Twist absconded, or was enticed, on Thursday evening last from his home at Pentonville, and has not since been heard of. 
The above reward will be paid to any person who will give such information as will lead to the discovery of the said Oliver Twist, or tend to throw any light upon his previous history, in which the advertiser is, for many reasons, warmly interested. And then followed a full description of Oliver's dress, person, appearance, and disappearance, with the name and address of Mr. Brownlow at full length. Mr. Bumble opened his eyes, read the advertisement slowly and carefully three several times, and in something more than five minutes was on his way to Pentonville, having actually, in his excitement, left the glass of hot gin and water untasted. "'Is Mr. Brownlow at home?' inquired Mr. Bumble of the girl who opened the door. To this inquiry the girl returned the not uncommon, but rather evasive reply of, "'I don't know. Where do you come from?' Mr. Bumble no sooner uttered Oliver's name in explanation of his errand than Mrs. Bedwin, who had been listening at the parlour door, hastened into the passage in a breathless state. "'Come in, come in,' said the old lady. "'I knew we should hear of him. Poor dear, I knew we should. I was certain of it. Bless his heart. I said so all along.' Having said this, the worthy old lady hurried back into the parlour again, and seating herself on a sofa, burst into tears. The girl, who was not quite so susceptible, had run upstairs meanwhile, and now returned with a request that Mr. Bumble would follow her immediately, which he did. He was shown into the little back study, where sat Mr. Brownlow and his friend Mr. Grimwig, with decanters and glasses before them. The latter gentleman at once burst into the exclamation, "'A beadle! A parish beadle, or I'll eat my head!' "'Pray, don't interrupt just now,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'Take a seat, will you?' Mr. Bumble sat himself down, quite confounded by the oddity of Mr. Grimwig's manner. Mr. Brownlow moved the lamp so as to obtain an uninterrupted view of the beadle's countenance, and said with a little impatience, "'Now, sir, you come in consequence of having seen the advertisement.' "'Yes, sir,' said Mr. Bumble. "'And you are a beadle, are you not?' inquired Mr. Grimwig. "'I am a parochial beadle, gentlemen,' rejoined Mr. Bumble proudly. "'Of course,' observed Mr. Grimwig aside to his friend, "'I knew he was. A beadle all over.' Mr. Brownlow gently shook his head to impose silence on his friend, and resumed. "'Do you know where this poor boy is now?' "'No more than nobody,' replied Mr. Bumble. "'Well, what do you know of him?' inquired the old gentleman. "'Speak out, my friend, if you have anything to say. What do you know of him?' "'You don't happen to know any good of him, do you?' said Mr. Grimwig caustically, after an attentive perusal of Mr. Bumble's features. Mr. Bumble, catching at the inquiry very quickly, shook his head with portentous solemnity. "'You see,' said Mr. Grimwig, looking triumphantly at Mr. Brownlow. Mr. Brownlow looked apprehensively at Mr. Bumble's pursed-up countenance, and requested him to communicate what he knew regarding Oliver, in as few words as possible.' Mr. Bumble put down his hat, unbuttoned his coat, folded his arms, inclined his head in a retrospective manner, and after a few moments' reflection commenced his story. It would be tedious if given in the beadle's words, occupying as it did some twenty minutes in the telling, but the sum and substance of it was that Oliver was a foundling, born of low and vicious parents, that he had from his birth displayed no better qualities than treachery, ingratitude, and malice that he had terminated his brief career in the place of his birth by making a sanguinary and cowardly attack on an unoffending lad and running away in the night-time from his master's house. In proof of his really being the person he represented himself, Mr. Bumble laid upon the table the papers he had brought to town. Folding his arms again, he then awaited Mr. Brownlow's observations. "'I fear it is all too true,' 
said the old gentleman sorrowfully, after looking over the papers. This is not much for your intelligence, but I would gladly have given you treble the money if it had been favourable to the boy. It is not at all improbable that if Mr. Bumble had been possessed of this information at an earlier period of the interview, he might have imparted a very different colouring to his little history. It was too late to do it now, however, so he shook his head gravely, and pocketing the five guineas, withdrew. Mr. Brownlow paced the room to and fro for some minutes, evidently so much disturbed by the beadle's tale, that even Mr. Grimwig forbore to vex him further. At length he stopped and rang the bell violently. "'Mrs. Bedwin,' said Mr. Brownlow, when the housekeeper appeared, "'that boy Oliver is an impostor.' "'It can't be, sir. It cannot be,' said the old lady energetically. "'I tell you he is,' retorted the old gentleman. "'What do you mean by can't be? We've just heard a full account of him from his birth, and he has been a thorough-paced little villain all his life.' "'I never will believe it, sir,' replied the old lady firmly. "'Never.' "'You old women never believe anything but quack doctors and lying story-books,' growled Mr. Grimwig. "'I knew it all along. Why didn't you take my advice in the beginning? You would if you hadn't had a fever, I suppose, eh? He was interesting, wasn't he? Interesting! Bah!' And Mr. Grimwig poked the fire with a flourish. "'He was a dear, grateful, gentle child, sir,' retorted Mrs. Bedwin indignantly. "'I know what children are, sir, and have done these forty years.' and people who can't say the same shouldn't say anything about them. That's my opinion." This was a hard hit at Mr. Grimwig, who was a bachelor. As it extorted nothing from that gentleman but a smile, the old lady tossed her head and smoothed down her apron preparatory to another speech, when she was stopped by Mr. Brownlow. "'Silence,' said the old gentleman, feigning an anger he was far from feeling. "'Never let me hear that boy's name again. I rang to tell you that. Never. Never on any pretense, mind. You may leave the room, Mrs. Bedwin. Remember, I am in earnest." There were sad hearts at Mr. Brownlow's that night. Oliver's heart sank within him when he thought of his good friends. It was well for him that he could not know what they had heard, or it might have broken outright. End of chapter 17《This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. How Oliver passed his time in the improving society of his reputable friends. About noon next day, when the Dodger and Master Bates had gone out to pursue their customary avocations, Mr. Fagin took the opportunity of reading Oliver a long lecture on the crying sin of ingratitude of which he clearly demonstrated he had been guilty, to no ordinary extent, in wilfully absenting himself from the society of his anxious friends, and, still more, in endeavouring to escape from them after so much trouble and expense had been incurred in his recovery. Mr. Fagin laid great stress on the fact of his having taken Oliver in, and cherished him when, without his timely aid, he might have perished with hunger and he related the dismal and affecting history of a young lad whom, in his philanthropy, he had succoured under parallel circumstances, but who, proving unworthy of his confidence and evincing a desire to communicate with the police, had unfortunately come to be hanged at the Old Bailey one morning. Mr. Fagin did not seek to conceal his share in the catastrophe, but lamented with tears in his eyes that the wrong-headed and treacherous behaviour of the young person in question had rendered it necessary that he should become the victim of certain evidence for the Crown, 
which, if it were not precisely true, was indispensably necessary for the safety of him, Mr. Fagin, and a few select friends. Mr. Fagin concluded by drawing a rather disagreeable picture of the discomforts of hanging, and with great friendliness and politeness of manner expressed his anxious hopes that he might never be obliged to submit Oliver Twist to that unpleasant operation. Little Oliver's blood ran cold as he listened to the Jew's words, and imperfectly comprehended the dark threats conveyed in them. That it was possible even for justice itself to confound the innocent with the guilty when they were in accidental companionship he already knew, and that deeply laid plans for the destruction of inconveniently knowing or over-communicative persons had been really devised and carried out by the Jew on more occasions than one he thought by no means unlikely, when he recollected the general nature of the altercations between that gentleman and Mr. Sykes, which seemed to bear reference to some foregone conspiracy of the kind. As he glanced timidly up and met the Jew's searching look, he felt that his pale face and trembling limbs were neither unnoticed nor unrelished by that wary old gentleman. The Jew, smiling hideously, patted Oliver on the head, and said that if he kept himself quiet and applied himself to business, he saw they would be very good friends yet. Then, taking his hat and covering himself with an old patched greatcoat, he went out and locked the room door behind him. And so Oliver remained all that day, and for the greater part of many subsequent days, seeing nobody between early morning and midnight, and left during the long hours to commune with his own thoughts, which never failing to revert to his kind friends and the opinion they must long ago have formed of him, were sad indeed. After a lapse of a week or so the Jew left the room door unlocked, and he was at liberty to wander about the house. It was a very dirty place. The rooms upstairs had great high wooden chimney-pieces and large doors, with panelled walls and cornices to the ceiling, which, although they were black with neglect and dust, were ornamented in various ways. From all of these tokens Oliver concluded that a long time ago, before the old Jew was born, it had belonged to better people, and had perhaps been quite gay and handsome, dismal and dreary as it looked now. Spiders had built their webs in the angles of the walls and ceiling, and sometimes when Oliver walked softly into a room the mice would scamper across the floor and run back terrified to their holes. With these exceptions there was neither sight nor sound of any living thing, and often when it grew dark and he was tired of wandering from room to room he would crouch in a corner of the passage by the street door to be as near living people as he could and would remain there listening and counting the hours until the Jew or the boys returned. In all the rooms the mouldering shutters were fast closed, the bars which held them were screwed tight into the wood, the only light which was admitted stealing its way through round holes at the top, which made the rooms more gloomy and filled them with strange shadows. There was a back garret window with rusty bars outside which had no shutter and out of this Oliver often gazed with a melancholy face for hours together. But nothing was to be descried from it but a confused and crowded mass of housetops, blackened chimneys and gable-ends. Sometimes, indeed, a grisly head might be seen peering over the parapet wall of a distant house, but it was quickly withdrawn again, and as the window of Oliver's observatory was nailed down and dimmed with the rain and smoke of years, it was as much as he could do to make out the forms of the different objects beyond, without making any attempt to be seen or heard, which he had as much chance of being as if he had lived inside the ball of St. Paul's Cathedral. 
One afternoon, the Dodger and Master Bates being engaged out that evening, the first-named young gentleman took it into his head to evince some anxiety regarding the decoration of his person. To do him justice, this was by no means an habitual weakness with him. And with this end and aim, he condescendingly commanded Oliver to assist him in his toilet straightway. Oliver was but too glad to make himself useful, too happy to have some faces, however bad, to look upon, too desirous to conciliate those about him when he could honestly do so, to throw any objection in the way of this proposal. So he at once expressed his readiness, and kneeling on the floor while the dodger sat upon the table so that he could take his foot in his lap, he applied himself to a process which Mr. Dawkins designated as japanning his trotter-cases. The phrase rendered into plain English signifieth cleaning his boots. Whether it was the sense of freedom and independence which a rational animal may be supposed to feel when he sits on a table, in an easy attitude, smoking a pipe, swinging one leg carelessly to and fro, and having his boots cleaned all the time, without even the past trouble of having taken them off, or the prospective misery of putting them on, to disturb his reflections, or whether it was the goodness of the tobacco that soothed the feelings of the dodger, or the mildness of the beer that mollified his thoughts, he was evidently tinctured for the nonce with a spice of romance and enthusiasm foreign to his general nature. He looked down on Oliver with a thoughtful countenance for a brief space, and then, raising his head and heaving a gentle sigh, said, half an abstraction and half to Master Bates, "'What a pity he isn't a prig!' "'Ah!' said Master Charlie Bates. "'He don't know what's good for him!' The Dodger sighed again and resumed his pipe, as did Charlie Bates. They both smoked for some seconds in silence. "'I suppose you don't even know what a prig is,' said the Dodger mournfully. "'I think I know that,' replied Oliver, looking up. "'It's a th—' uh, "'You're one, are you not?' inquired Oliver, checking himself. "'I am,' replied the Dodger. "'I'd scorn to be anything else.' Mr. Dawkins gave his hat a ferocious cock after delivering this sentiment and looked at Master Bates, as if to denote that he would feel obliged by his saying anything to the contrary. "'I am,' repeated the Dodger. "'So's Charlie, so's Fagin, so's Sykes, so's Nancy, so's Bet. So we all are, down to the dog, and he's the downiest one of the lot.' "'And the least given to preaching,' added Charlie Bates. "'He wouldn't so much as bark in the witness-box for fear of committing himself. No, not if you tied him up in one and left him there without whittles for a fortnight,' said the Dodger. "'Not a bit of it,' observed Charlie. "'He's a rump-dog. Don't he look fierce at any strange cove that laughs or sings when he's in company?' pursued the Dodger. "'Won't he growl at all when he hears a fiddle playing? And don't he eat other dogs as ain't of his breed? Oh, no!' "'He's a out-and-out -out Christian,' said Charlie. This was merely intended as a tribute to the animal's abilities, but it was an appropriate remark in another sense if Master Bates had only known it, for there are a good many ladies and gentlemen claiming to be out-and-out -out Christians, between whom and Mr. Sykes' dog there exist strong and singular points of resemblance. "'Well, well,' said the Dodger, recurring to the point from which they had strayed, with that mindfulness of his profession which influenced all his proceedings. "'This hasn't got anything to do with young Green here.' "'No more it has,' said Charlie. "'Why don't you put yourself under Fagin, Oliver?' "'And make your fortune out of hand,' added the Dodger, with a grin. "'And so be able to retire on your property and do the genteel, as I mean to, in the very next leap year before that ever comes, and the forty-second Tuesday in Trinity Week,' said Charlie Bates. "'I don't like it,' rejoined Oliver timidly. "'I wish they would let me go. I—' I would rather go. 
"'And Fagin would rather not,' rejoined Charlie. Oliver knew this too well, but thinking it might be dangerous to express his feelings more openly, he only sighed and went on with his boot-cleaning. "'Go!' exclaimed the Dodger. "'Why, where's your spirit? Don't you take any pride out yourself? Would you go and be dependent on your friends?' "'Oh, blow that!' said Master Bates, drawing two or three silk handkerchiefs from his pocket and tossing them into a cupboard. "'That's too mean, that is!' "'I couldn't do it,' said the Dodger, with an air of haughty disgust. "'You can leave your friends, though,' said Oliver, with a half-smile, "'and let them be punished for what you did.' "'That,' rejoined the Dodger, with a wave of his pipe, "'that was all out of consideration for Fagin, "'cause the traps know that we worked together, "'and he might have got into trouble if we hadn't made our lucky.' "'That was the move, wasn't it, Charlie?' Master Bates nodded assent, and would have spoken, but the recollection of Oliver's flight came so suddenly upon him that the smoke he was inhaling got entangled with a laugh, and went up into his head and down into his throat, and brought on a fit of coughing and stamping about five minutes long. "'Look here,' said the Dodger, drawing forth a handful of shillings and halfpence. "'Here's a jolly life. What's the odds where it comes from? Here, catch hold. There's plenty more where they were took from.' "'You won't, won't you? Oh, you precious flat!' "'It's naughty, ain't it, Oliver?' inquired Charlie Bates. "'He'll come to be scragged, won't he?' "'I—I I don't know what that means,' replied Oliver. "'Something in this way, old feller,' said Charlie. As he said it, Master Bates caught up an end of his neckerchief, and holding it erect in the air, dropped his head on his shoulder, and jerked a curious sound through his teeth, thereby indicating, by a lively pantomimic representation, that scragging and hanging were one and the same thing. "'That's what it means,' said Charlie. "'Look how he stares, Jack!' "'I never did see such prime company as that ere boy. He'll be the death of me, I know he will!' Master Charlie Bates, having laughed heartily again, resumed his pipe with tears in his eyes. "'You've been brought up bad,' said the Dodger, surveying his boots with much satisfaction when Oliver had polished them. "'Fagin will make something of you, though.' or you'll be the first he ever had that turned out unprofitable. You'd better begin at once, for you'll come to the trade long before you think of it, and you're only losing time, Oliver." Master Bates backed this advice with sundry moral admonitions of his own, which, being exhausted, he and his friend Mr. Dawkins launched into a glowing description of the numerous pleasures, incidental to the life they led, interspersed with a variety of hints to Oliver that the best thing he could do would be to secure Fagin's favour without more delay by the means which they themselves had employed to gain it. "'And always put this in your pipe, Nolly,' said the Dodger, as the Jew was heard unlocking the door above. "'If you don't take fogles and tickers—' "'What's the good of talking that way?' interposed Master Bates. "'He don't know what you mean.' "'If you don't take pocket-handkerchiefs and watches,' said the Dodger, reducing his conversation to the level of Oliver's capacity, "'some other cove will, so that the cove that loses him will be all the worse.' and you'll be all the worse too, and nobody half a hape at the better, except the chaps what gets them, and you've just as good a right to them as they have." "'To be sure, to be sure,' said the Jew, who had entered unseen by Oliver. "'It all lies in a nutshell, my dear, in a nutshell. Take the Dodger's word for it. <laughs> he understands the catechism of his trade.' The old man rubbed his hands gleefully together as he corroborated the Dodger's reasoning in these terms, and chuckled with delight at his pupil's proficiency. The conversation proceeded no farther at this time, for the Jew had returned home accompanied by Miss Betsy, and a gentleman whom Oliver had never seen before, 
but who was accosted by the dodger as Tom Chitling, and who, having lingered on the stairs to exchange a few gallantries with the lady, now made his appearance. Mr. Chitling was older in years than the dodger, having perhaps numbered eighteen winters, but there was a degree of deference in his deportment towards that young gentleman which seemed to indicate that he felt himself conscious of a slight inferiority in points of genius and professional acquirements. He had small twinkling eyes and a pock-marked face, wore a fur cap, a dark corduroy jacket, greasy fustian trousers, and an apron. His wardrobe was, in truth, rather out of repair, but he excused himself to the company by stating that his time was out only an hour before, and that in consequence of having worn the regimentals for six weeks past, he had not been able to bestow any attention on his private clothes. Mr. Chitling added, with strong marks of irritation, that the new way of fumigating clothes up yonder was infernal unconstitutional, for it burnt holes in them, and there was no remedy against the county. The same remark he considered to apply to the regulation mode of cutting the hair, which he held to be decidedly unlawful. Mr. Chitling wound up his observations by stating that he had not touched a drop of anything for forty-two mortal long hard-working days and that he wished he might be busted if he weren't as dry as a lime-basket. "'Where do you think the gentleman has come from, Oliver?' inquired the Jew with a grin, as the other boys put a bottle of spirits on the table. "'I—I I don't know, sir,' replied Oliver. "'Who's that?' inquired Tom Chitling, casting a contemptuous look at Oliver. "'A young friend of mine, my dear,' replied the Jew. "'He's in luck, then,' said the young man, with a meaning look at Fagin. Never mind where I come from, young'un. You'll find your way there soon enough, I'll bet a crown." At this sally the boys laughed. After some more jokes on the same subject they exchanged a few short whispers with Fagin and withdrew. After some words apart between the last comer and Fagin they drew their chairs towards the fire, and the Jew, telling Oliver to come and sit by them, led the conversation to the topics most calculated to interest his hearers. These were the great advantages of the trade, the proficiency of the dodger, the amiability of Charlie Bates, and the liberality of the Jew himself. At length these subjects displayed signs of being thoroughly exhausted, and Mr. Chitling did the same, for the house of correction becomes fatiguing after a week or two. Miss Betsy accordingly withdrew, and left the party to their repose. From this day Oliver was seldom left alone, but was placed in almost constant communication with the two boys, who played the old game with the Jew every day, whether for their own improvement or Oliver's Mr. Fagin knew best. At other times the old man would tell them stories of robberies he had committed in his younger days, mixed up with so much that was droll and curious that Oliver could not help laughing heartily, and showing that he was amused in spite of all his better feelings. In short, the wily old Jew had the boy in his toils. Having prepared his mind by solitude and gloom to prefer any society to the companionship of his own sad thoughts in such a dreary place, he was now slowly instilling into his soul the poison which he hoped would blacken it and change its hue for ever. End of chapter 18《Chapter Nineteen of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. In which a notable plan is discussed and determined on. 
It was a chill, damp, windy night when the Jew, buttoning his greatcoat tight round his shrivelled body, and pulling the collar up over his ears so as completely to obscure the lower part of his face, emerged from his den. He paused on the step as the door was locked and chained behind him, and having listened while the boys made all secure, and until their retreating footsteps were no longer audible, slunk down the street as quickly as he could. The house to which Oliver had been conveyed was in the neighbourhood of Whitechapel. The Jew stopped for an instant at the corner of the street, and, glancing suspiciously round, crossed the road and struck off in the direction of Spitalfields. The mud lay thick upon the stones, and a black mist hung over the streets. The rain fell sluggishly down, and everything felt cold and clammy to the touch. It seemed just the night when it befitted such a being as the Jew to be abroad. As he glided stealthily along, creeping beneath the shelter of the walls and doorways, the hideous old man seemed like some loathsome reptile, engendered in the slime and darkness through which he moved, crawling forth by night in search of some rich offal for a meal. He kept on his course through many winding and narrow ways until he reached Bethnal Green, then, turning suddenly off to the left, he soon became involved in a maze of the mean and dirty streets which abound in that close and densely populated quarter. The Jew was evidently too familiar with the ground he traversed to be at all bewildered, either by the darkness of the night or the intricacies of the way. He hurried through several alleys and streets, and at length turned into one, lighted only by a single lamp at the farther end. At the door of a house in this street he knocked. Having exchanged a few muttered words with the person who opened it, he walked upstairs. A dog growled as he touched the handle of a room door, and a man's voice demanded who was there. "'Only me, Bill, only me, my dear,' said the Jew, looking in. "'Bring your body in, then,' said Sykes. "'Lie down, you stupid brute. Don't you know the devil when he's got a great coat on?' Apparently the dog had been somewhat deceived by Mr. Fagin's outer garment, for as the Jew unbuttoned it and threw it over the back of a chair, he retired to the corner from which he had risen, wagging his tail as he went to show that he was as well satisfied as it was in his nature to be. "'Well,' said Sykes. "'Well, my dear,' replied the Jew. "'Ah, Nancy!' The latter recognition was uttered with just enough embarrassment to imply a doubt of its reception, for Mr. Fagin and his young friend had not met since he had interfered in behalf of Oliver. All doubts upon the subject, if he had any, were speedily removed by the young lady's behaviour. She took her feet off the fender, pushed back her chair, and bade Fagin to draw up his, without saying more about it for it was a cold night, and no mistake. "'It is cold, Nancy, dear,' said the Jew, as he warmed his skinny hands over the fire. "'It seems to go right through one,' added the old man, touching his side. "'It must be a piercer if it finds its way through your art,' said Mr. Sykes. "'Give him something to drink, Nancy. Burn my body, make haste. It's enough to turn a man ill to see his lean old carcass shivering in that way, like an ugly ghost just rose from the grave.' Nancy quickly brought a bottle from a cupboard, in which there were many which, to judge from the diversity of their appearance, were filled with several kinds of liquids. Sykes, pouring out a glass of brandy, bade the Jew drink it off. "'Quite enough, quite, thank you, Bill,' replied the Jew, putting down the glass after just setting his lips to it. "'What, you're afraid of our getting the better of you, are you?' inquired Sykes, setting his eyes on the Jew. Ugh. With a hoarse grunt of contempt, Mr. Sykes seized the glass, 
and threw the remainder of its contents into the ashes, as a preparatory ceremony to filling it again for himself, which he did at once. The Jew glanced round the room as his companion tossed down the second glassful, not in curiosity, for he had seen it often before, but in a restless and suspicious manner habitual to him. It was a meanly furnished apartment, with nothing but the contents of the closet to induce the belief that its occupier was anything but a working man, and with no more suspicious articles displayed to view than two or three heavy bludgeons which stood in a corner, and a life-preserver that hung over the chimney-piece. There, said Sykes, smacking his lips, now I'm ready. For business? inquired the Jew. For business, replied Sykes. So say what you got to say. About the crib at Chertsey, Bill said the Jew, drawing his chair forward and speaking in a very low voice. "'Yeah, what about it?' inquired Sykes. "'Ah, you know what I mean, my dear,' said the Jew. "'He knows what I mean, Nancy, don't he?' "'No, he don't,' sneered Mr. Sykes. "'Or he won't, and that's the same thing. Speak out and call things by their right names. Don't sit there winking and blinking and talking to me in ints, as if you weren't the very first that thought about the robbery. What do you mean?' "'Ush, Bill, ush,' said the Jew, who had in vain attempted to stop this burst of indignation. "'Somebody will hear us, my dear. Somebody will hear us.' "'Let him hear,' said Sykes. "'I don't care.' But as Mr. Sykes did care on reflection, he dropped his voice as he said the words, and grew calmer. "'There, there,' said the Jew, coaxingly. "'It was only my caution, nothing more. Now, my dear, about that crib at Chertsey. When is it to be done, Bill, eh?' "'When is it to be done? Such plate, my dear, such plate!' said the Jew, rubbing his hands, and elevating his eyebrows in a rapture of anticipation. "'Not at all,' replied Sykes, coldly. "'Not to be done at all,' echoed the Jew, leaning back in his chair. "'Now, not at all,' rejoined Sykes. "'At least it can't be a put-up job as we expected.' "'Then it hasn't been properly gone about,' said the Jew, turning pale with anger. Don't tell me. But I will tell you, retorted Sykes. Who are you that's not to be told? I tell you that Toby Crackett has been hanging about the place for a fortnight, and he can't get one of the servants in line. Do you mean to tell me, Bill, said the Jew, softening as the other grew heated, that neither of the two men in the house can be got over? Yeah, I do mean to tell you so, replied Sykes. The old lady has had them these twenty years, and if you were to give them five hundred pounds, they wouldn't be in it. Do you mean to say, my dear, remonstrated the Jew, that the women can't be got over? Not a bit of it, replied Sykes. Not by flash Toby Crackett, said the Jew incredulously. Think what women are, Bill. Now, not even by flash Toby Crackett, replied Sykes. He says he's worn sham whiskers and a canary waistcoat the whole blessed time he's been loitering down there, and it's all of no use. He should have tried mustachios and a pair of military trousers, my dear, said the Jew. So he did, rejoined Sykes, and they weren't no more use than the other plant. The Jew looked blank at this information. After ruminating for some minutes with his chin sunk on his breast, he raised his head and said with a deep sigh, that if Flash Toby Crackett reported right, he feared the game was up. "'And yet,' said the old man, dropping his hands on his knees, "'it's a sad thing, my dear, to lose so much when we had set our hearts upon it.' "'So it is,' said Mr. Sykes. "'Worse luck.' A long silence ensued, 
during which the Jew was plunged in deep thought, with his face wrinkled into an expression of villainy perfectly demoniacal. Sykes eyed him furtively from time to time. Nancy, apparently fearful of irritating the housebreaker, sat with her eyes fixed upon the fire, as if she had been deaf to all that passed. "'Fagin,' said Sykes, abruptly breaking the stillness that prevailed, "'is it worth fifty shiners extra if it's safely done from the outside?' "'Yes,' said the Jew, as suddenly rousing himself. "'Is it a bargain?' inquired Sykes. "'Yes, my dear, yes,' rejoined the Jew, his eyes glistening, and every muscle in his face working with the excitement that the inquiry had awakened. "'Then,' said Sykes, thrusting aside the Jew's hand with some disdain, let it come off as soon as you like. Toby and me were over the garden wall the night before last, sounding the panels of the door and shutters. The crib's barred up like a jail at night, but there's one part we can crack safe and softly. Which is that, Bill? asked the Jew eagerly. Why, whispered Sykes, as you cross the lawn. Yes, said the Jew, bending his head forward, with his eyes almost starting out of it. Huh said Sykes, stopping short, as the girl, scarcely moving her head, looked suddenly round and pointed for an instant to the Jew's face. "'Never mind which part it is. You can't do it without me, I know. But it's best to be on the safe side when one deals with you.' "'As you like, my dear, as you like,' replied the Jew. "'Is there no help wanted but yours and Toby's?' "'None,' replied Sykes, "'set the centre bit and a boy. The first we both got, and the second you must find us.' "'A boy!' exclaimed the Jew. "'Oh, then it's a panel, eh?' "'Never mind what it is,' replied Sykes. "'I want a boy, and he mustn't be a big un.' "'Lord,' said Mr. Sykes reflectively, "'if I'd only got that young boy of Ned the chimbley-sweepers. "'He kept him small on purpose, and let him out by the job. "'But the father gets lagged, and then the juvenile delinquent society comes, "'and takes the boy away from a trade where he's earning money.' teaches him to read and write, and in time makes apprentice of him. And so they go on, said Mr. Sykes, his wrath rising with the recollection of his wrongs. And so they go on, and if they've got money enough, which is a providence they haven't, we shouldn't have half a dozen boys left in the whole trade in a year or two. No more we should, acquiesced the Jew, who had been considering during this speech and had only caught the last sentence. Bill. What now? inquired Sykes. The Jew nodded his head towards Nancy, who was still gazing at the fire, and intimated, by a sign, that he would have her told to leave the room. Sykes shrugged his shoulders impatiently, as if he thought the precaution unnecessary, but complied nevertheless by requesting Miss Nancy to fetch him a jug of beer. "'You don't want any beer,' said Nancy, folding her arms and retaining her seat very composedly. "'I'll tell you I do,' replied Sykes. "'Nonsense,' rejoined the girl coolly. "'Go on, Fagin.' I know what he's going to say, Bill. He needn't mind me." The Jew still hesitated. Sykes looked from one to the other in some surprise. "'Why, you don't mind the old girl, do you, Fagin?' he asked at length. "'You've known her long enough to trust her, or the devil's in it. She ain't one to blab, are you, Nancy?' "'I should think not,' replied the young lady, drawing her chair up to the table and putting her elbows upon it. "'Now, now, my dear, I know you're not,' said the Jew. But and again the old man paused. "'But what?' inquired Sykes. "'I didn't know whether she might perhaps be out of sorts, you know, my dear, as she was the other night,' replied the Jew. At this confession Miss Nancy burst into a loud laugh, and swallowing a glass of brandy shook her head with an air of defiance, and burst into sundry exclamations of, 
keep the game a-going, never say die, and the like. These seemed to have the effect of reassuring both gentlemen, for the Jew nodded his head with a satisfied air and resumed his seat, as did Mr. Sykes likewise. "'Now, Fagin,' said Nancy with a laugh, "'tell Bill at once about Oliver.' "'Ha! <laughs> you're a clever one, my dear, the sharpest girl I ever saw,' said the Jew, patting her on the neck. "'It was about Oliver I was going to speak, sure enough.' <laughs> "'What about him?' demanded Sykes. "'He's the boy for you, my dear,' replied the Jew in a hoarse whisper, laying his finger on the side of his nose and grinning frightfully. "'He!' exclaimed Sykes. "'Have him, Bill,' said Nancy. "'I would if I was in your place. He mayn't be so much up as any of the others, but that's not what you want, if it's only to open a door for you. Depend upon it, he's a safe one, Bill.' "'I know he is,' rejoined Fagin. "'He's been in good training these last few weeks, and it's time he began to work for his bread.' Besides, the others are all too big. Well, he is just the size I want, said Mr. Sykes, ruminating. And we'll do everything you want, Bill, my dear, interposed the Jew. He can't help himself. That is, if you frighten him enough. Frighten him, echoed Sykes. It'll be no sham frighten him, mind you. If there's anything queer about him when we once get into the work, in for a penny, in for a pound. You won't see him alive again, Fagin. Think of that before you send him. "'Mark my words,' said the robber, poising a crowbar which he had drawn from under the bedstead. "'I've thought of it all,' said the Jew with energy. "'I've—I've I've had my eye upon him, my dears, close, close. Once let him feel that he is one of us. Once fill his mind with the idea that he has been a thief, and he's ours. Ours for life. Oh, it couldn't have come about better.' The old man crossed his arms upon his breast, and drawing his head and shoulders into a heap, literally hugged himself for joy. "'That was,' said Sykes, "'yours you mean.' "'Perhaps I do, my dear,' said the Jew, with a shrill chuckle. "'Mine, if you like, Bill.' "'And what,' said Sykes, scowling fiercely on his agreeable friend, "'what makes you take so much pains about one chalk-faced kid, when you know there are fifty boys snoozing about Common Garden every night, as you might pick and choose from?' "'Because they're of no use to me, my dear,' replied the Jew, with some confusion. Not worth the taking. Their looks convict them when they get into trouble, and I'll lose them all. With this boy properly managed, my dears, I could do what I couldn't with twenty of them. Besides, said the Jew, recovering his self-possession, he has us now if he could only give us leg bail again, and he must be in the same boat with us. Never mind how he came there. It's quite enough for my power over him that he was in a robbery. That's all I want. Now, how much better this is than being obliged to put the poor little boy out of the way, which would be dangerous, and we should lose by it besides. "'When is it to be done?' asked Nancy, stopping some turbulent exclamation on the part of Mr. Sykes, expressive of the disgust with which he received Fagin's affectation of humanity. "'Ah, to be sure,' said the Jew. "'When is it to be done, Bill?' "'I planned with Toby the night after to-morrow,' rejoined Sykes in a surly voice, "'if he heard nothing from me to the contrary.' good said the jew there's no moon no rejoined sykes it's all arranged about bringing off the swag is it asked the jew sykes nodded and about oh, it's all planned rejoined sykes interrupting him never mind particulars you'd better bring the boy here to-morrow night i shall get off the stone an hour after daybreak then you hold your tongue and keep the melting pot ready and that's all you have to do 
After some discussion, in which all three took an active part, it was decided that Nancy should repair to the Jews next evening when the night had set in, and bring Oliver away with her, Fagin craftily observing that if he evinced any disinclination to the task he would be more willing to accompany the girl who had recently interfered in his behalf than anybody else. It was also solemnly arranged that poor Oliver should, for the purposes of the contemplated expedition, be unreservedly consigned to the care and custody of Mr. William Sykes, and further that the said Sykes should deal with him as he thought fit, and should not be held responsible by the Jew for any mischance or evil that might be necessary to visit him, it being understood that, to render the compact in this respect binding, any representations made by Mr. Sykes on his return should be required to be confirmed and corroborated, in all important particulars, by the testimony of Flash Toby Crackett. These preliminaries adjusted, Mr. Sykes proceeded to drink brandy at a furious rate, and to flourish the crowbar in an alarming manner, yelling forth at the same time most unmusical snatches of song, mingled with wild execrations. At length, in a fit of professional enthusiasm, he insisted upon producing his box of house-breaking tools, which he had no sooner stumbled in with and opened for the purpose of explaining the nature and properties of the various implements it contained, and the particular beauties of their construction, than he fell over the box upon the floor and went to sleep where he fell. "'Good night, Nancy,' said the Jew, muffling himself up as before. "'Good night.' Their eyes met, and the Jew scrutinised her narrowly. There was no flinching about the girl. She was as true and earnest in the matter as Toby Crackett himself could be. The Jew again bade her good-night, and bestowing a sly kick upon the prostrate form of Mr. Sykes while her back was turned, groped downstairs. "'Always the way,' muttered the Jew to himself as he turned homeward. "'The worst of these women is that a very little thing serves to call up some long-forgotten feeling, and the best of them is that it never lasts. <laughs> the man against the child for a bag of gold!' Beguiling the time with these pleasant reflections, Mr. Fagin wended his way through mud and mire to his gloomy abode, where the dodger was sitting up impatiently awaiting his return. "'Is Oliver abed? I want to speak to him,' was his first remark as they descended the stairs. "'Hours ago,' replied the dodger, throwing open the door. "'Here he is.' The boy was lying fast asleep on a rude bed on the floor, so pale with anxiety and sadness, and the closeness of his prison that he looked like death. Not death as it shows in a shroud and coffin, but in the guise it wears when life has just departed, when a young and gentle spirit has but an instant fled to heaven, and the gross air of the world has not had time to breathe upon the changing dust it hallowed. "'Not now,' said the Jew, turning softly away. "'Tomorrow! Tomorrow!' End of chapter 19 Chapter Twenty of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Wherein Oliver is delivered over to Mr. William Sykes. When Oliver awoke in the morning, he was a good deal surprised to find that a new pair of shoes with strong, thick soles had been placed at his bedside, and that his old shoes had been removed. At first he was pleased with the discovery, hoping that it might be the forerunner of his release, but such thoughts were quickly dispelled on his sitting down to breakfast along with the Jew, who told him, in a tone and manner which increased his alarm, that he was to be taken to the residence of Bill Sykes that night. 
to—to stop there, sir?' asked Oliver anxiously. "'No, no, my dear, not to stop there,' replied the Jew. "'We wouldn't like to lose you. Don't be afraid, Oliver. You shall come back to us again. <laughs> we wouldn't be so cruel as to send you away, my dear. Oh, no, no!' The old man, who was stooping over the fire toasting a piece of bread, looked round as he bantered Oliver thus, and chuckled as if to show that he knew he would still be very glad to get away if he could. "'I suppose,' said the Jew, fixing his eyes on Oliver, "'you want to know what you're going to Bill's for, eh, my dear?' Oliver coloured involuntarily, to find that the old thief had been reading his thoughts, but boldly said, yes, he did want to know. "'What do you think?' inquired Fagin, parrying the question. "'Indeed, I don't know, sir,' replied Oliver. "'Bah!' said the Jew, turning away with a disappointed countenance from a close perusal of the boy's face. "'Wait till Bill tells you, then.' The Jew seemed much vexed by Oliver's not expressing any greater curiosity on the subject, but the truth is that, although Oliver felt very anxious, he was too much confused by the earnest cunning of Fagin's looks and his own speculations to make any further inquiries just then. He had no other opportunity, for the Jew remained very surly and silent till night, when he prepared to go abroad. "'You may burn a candle,' said the Jew, putting one upon the table, "'and here's a book for you to read till they come to fetch you. Good night.' "'Good night,' replied Oliver softly. The Jew walked to the door, looking over his shoulder at the boy as he went. Suddenly stopping, he called him by his name. Oliver looked up. The Jew, pointing to the candle, motioned him to light it. He did so, and as he placed the candlestick upon the table, saw that the Jew was gazing fixedly at him, with lowering and contracted brows, from the dark end of the room. "'Take heed, Oliver, take heed,' said the old man, shaking his right hand before him in a warning manner. "'He's a rough man.' and thinks nothing of blood when his own is up. Whatever falls out, say nothing, and do what he bids you, mind." Placing a strong emphasis on the last word, he suffered his features gradually to resolve themselves into a ghastly grin, and, nodding his head, left the room. Oliver leaned his head upon his hand when the old man disappeared, and pondered with a trembling heart on the words he had just heard. The more he thought of the Jew's admonition, the more he was at a loss to divine its real purpose and meaning. He could think of no bad object to be attained by sending him to Sykes, which would not be equally well answered by his remaining with Fagin, and after meditating a long time, concluded that he had been selected to perform some ordinary menial offices for the housebreaker until another boy, better suited for his purpose, could be engaged. He was too well accustomed to suffering, and had suffered too much where he was, to bewail the prospect of change very severely. He remained lost in thought for some minutes, and then, with a heavy sigh, snuffed the candle, and, taking up the book which the Jew had left with him, began to read. He turned over the leaves, carelessly at first, but lighting on a passage which attracted his attention, he soon became intent upon the volume. It was a history of the lives and trials of great criminals, and the pages were soiled and thumbed with use. Here he read of dreadful crimes that made the blood run cold, of secret murders that had been committed by the lonely wayside, of bodies hidden from the eye of man in deep pits and wells, which would not keep them down, deep as they were, but had yielded them up at last after many years, and so maddened the murderers with the sight, that in their horror they had confessed their guilt, and yelled for the gibbet to end their agony. 
Here, too, he read of men who, lying in their beds at dead of night, had been tempted, or so they said, and led on by their own bad thoughts, to such dreadful bloodshed as it made the flesh creep and the limbs quail to think of. The terrible descriptions were so real and vivid that the sallow pages seemed to turn red with gore, and the words upon them to be sounded in his ears as if they were whispered in hollow murmurs by the spirits of the dead. In a paroxysm of fear the boy closed the book and thrust it from him. Then, falling upon his knees, he prayed to heaven to spare him from such deeds, and rather to will that he should die at once than be reserved for crimes so fearful and appalling. By degrees he became more calm and besought, in a low, broken voice, that he might be rescued from his present dangers, and that if any aid were to be raised up for a poor outcast boy who had never known the love of friends or kindred, it might come to him now, when, desolate and deserted, he stood alone in the midst of wickedness and guilt. He had concluded his prayer, but still remained with his head buried in his hands, when a rustling noise aroused him. "'What's that?' he cried, starting up and catching sight of a figure standing by the door. "'Who's there?' "'Me. Only me,' replied a tremulous voice. Oliver raised the candle above his head and looked towards the door. It was Nancy. "'Put down the light,' said the girl, turning away her head. "'It hurts my eyes.' Oliver saw that she was very pale, and gently inquired if she were ill. The girl threw herself into a chair with her back towards him, and wrung her hands, but made no reply. "'God forgive me,' she cried after a while. "'I never thought of this.' "'Has anything happened?' asked Oliver. "'Can I help you? I will if I can. I will indeed.' She rocked herself to and fro, caught her throat and uttering a gurgling sound, gasped for breath. "'Nancy!' cried Oliver. "'What is it?' The girl beat her hands upon her knees and her feet upon the ground, and suddenly stopping drew her shawl close round her and shivered with cold. Oliver stirred the fire. Drawing her chair close to it, she sat there for a little time without speaking, but at length she raised her head and looked round. "'I don't know what comes over me sometimes,' she said, affecting to busy herself in arranging her dress. "'It's this damp, dirty room, I think. Now, Nolly, dear, are you ready?' "'Am I to go with you?' asked Oliver. "'Yes, I have come from Bill,' replied the girl. "'You are to go with me.' "'What for?' asked Oliver, recoiling. "'What for?' echoed the girl, raising her eyes and averting them again the moment they encountered the boy's face. "'Oh, for no harm!' "'I don't believe it,' said Oliver, who had watched her closely. "'Have it your own way,' rejoined the girl, affecting to laugh. "'For no good, then.' Oliver could see that he had some power over the girl's better feelings, and for an instant thought of appealing to her compassion for his helpless state. But then the thought darted across his mind that it was barely eleven o'clock, and that many people were still in the streets, of whom surely some might be found to give credence to his tale. As the reflection occurred to him he stepped forward and said somewhat hastily that he was ready. Neither his brief consideration nor its purport was lost on his companion. She eyed him narrowly while he spoke and cast upon him a look of intelligence which sufficiently showed that she guessed what had been passing in his thoughts. "'Hush!' said the girl, stooping over him and pointing to the door as she looked cautiously round. "'You can't help yourself. I've tried hard for you, but all to no purpose. You are edged round and round. If you ever are to get loose from here, this is not the time." Struck by the energy of her manner, Oliver looked up in her face with great surprise. She seemed to speak the truth. 
Her countenance was white and agitated, and she trembled with very earnestness. "'I have saved you from being ill-used once, and I will again, and I do now,' continued the girl aloud, "'for those who would have fetched you if I had not would have been far more rough than me. I have promised for your being quiet and silent. If you are not, you will only do harm to yourself and to me too, and perhaps be my death. See here, I have borne all this for you already, as true as God sees me show it.' She pointed hastily to some livid bruises on her neck and arms, and continued with great rapidity. "'Remember this. Don't let me suffer more for you just now. If I could help you, I would, but I have not the power. They don't mean to harm you. Whatever they make you do is no fault of yours. Hush! Every word from you is a blow for me. Give me your hand. Make haste your hand.' She caught the hand which Oliver instinctively placed in hers, and blowing out the light drew him after her up the stairs. The door was opened quickly by someone shrouded in the darkness, and was closed quickly when they had passed out. A hackney cabriolet was in waiting. With the same vehemence with which he exhibited in addressing Oliver, the girl pulled him in with her, and drew the curtains close. The driver wanted no directions, but lashed his horse into full speed without the delay of an instant. The girl still held Oliver fast by the hand, and continued to pour into his ear the warnings and assurances she had already imparted. All was so quick and hurried that he had scarcely time to recollect where he was or how he came there, when the carriage stopped at the house to which the Jew's steps had been directed on the previous evening. For one brief moment Oliver cast a hurried glance along the empty street, and a cry for help hung upon his lips but the girl's voice was in his ear, beseeching him in such tones of agony to remember her, that he had not the heart to utter it. While he hesitated the opportunity was gone, and he was already in the house and the door was shut. "'This way,' said the girl, releasing her hold for the first time. "'Bill!' "'Hello,' replied Sykes, appearing at the head of the stairs with a candle. "'Oh, that's the time of day. Come on.' This was a very strong expression of approbation an uncommonly hearty welcome from a person of Mr. Sykes' temperament. Nancy, appearing much gratified thereby, saluted him cordially. "'Bullseye's gone on with Tom,' observed Sykes, as he lighted them up. "'He'd have been in the way.' "'That's right,' rejoined Nancy. "'So, you've got the kid,' said Sykes, when they had all reached the room, closing the door as he spoke. "'Yes, here he is,' replied Nancy. "'Did he come quiet?' inquired Sykes. "'Like a lamb.' rejoined Nancy. Oh, "'I'm glad to hear it,' said Sykes, looking grimly at Oliver, for the sake of his young carcass, as with other ways I've suffered for it. Come here, young one, and let me read you a lecture, which is as well got over at once.' Thus addressing his new pupil, Mr. Sykes pulled off Oliver's cap and threw it into a corner, and then, taking him by the shoulder, sat himself down by the table, and stood the boy in front of him. "'Now, first, do you know what this is?' inquired Sykes, taking up a pocket-pistol which lay on the table. Oliver replied in the affirmative. "'Well, then, look here,' continued Sykes. "'This is powder, that there's a bullet, and this is a little bit of old hat for wadding.' Oliver murmured his comprehension of the different bodies referred to, and Mr. Sykes proceeded to load the pistol, with great nicety and deliberation. "'Now it's loaded,' said Mr. Sykes, when he had finished. "'Yes, I see it is, sir,' replied Oliver. "'Well,' said the robber, grasping Oliver's wrist, and putting the barrel so close to his temple that they touched, at which moment the boy could not repress a start. "'If you speak a word when you're out of doors with me, except when I speak to you, that loading will be in your head without notice. 
So, if you do make up your mind to speak without leave, say your prayers first. Having bestowed a scowl upon the object of his warning to increase its effect, Mr. Sykes continued. As near as I know, there isn't anybody as will be asking very particular after you, if you was disposed of. So I needn't take this devil and all of trouble to explain matters to you, if it weren't for your own good. Dear me. The short and the long of what you mean, said Nancy, speaking very emphatically, and slightly frowning at Oliver, as if to bespeak his serious attention to her words, is that if you are crossed by him in this job you have on hand, you'll prevent his ever telling tales afterwards by shooting him through the head, and you'll take your chance for swinging for it, as you do for a great many other things in the way of business every month of your life. That's it observed Mr. Sykes approvingly. Women can always put things in fewest words, except when it's blowing up and then they lengthens it out. And now that he's thoroughly up to it, let's have some supper and get a snooze before starting. In pursuance of this request, Nancy quickly lay the cloth. Disappearing for a few minutes, she presently returned with a pot of porter and a dish of sheep's heads, which gave occasion to several pleasant witticisms on the part of Mr. Sykes, founded upon the singular coincidence of Jemmy's being a cant name in common to them and also to an ingenious implement much used in his profession. Indeed, the worthy gentleman, stimulated perhaps by the immediate prospect of being on active service, was in great spirits and good humour, in proof whereof it may be here remarked that he humorously drank all the beer at a draught and did not utter on a rough calculation more than fourscore oaths during the whole progress of the meal. Supper being ended, it may be easily conceived that Oliver had no great appetite for it, Mr. Sykes disposed of a couple of glasses of spirits and water, and threw himself on the bed, ordering Nancy, with many imprecations in case of failure, to call him at five precisely. Oliver stretched himself in his clothes, by command of the same authority, on a mattress upon the floor, and the girl, mending the fire, sat before it, in readiness to rouse them at the appointed time. For a long time Oliver lay awake, thinking it not impossible that Nancy might seek that opportunity of whispering some further advice, but the girl sat brooding over the fire without moving, save now and then to trim the light. Weary with watching and anxiety, he at length fell asleep. When he awoke, the table was covered with tea-things, and Sykes was thrusting various articles into the pockets of his greatcoat, which hung over the back of a chair. Nancy was busily engaged in preparing breakfast. It was not yet daylight, for the candle was still burning and it was quite dark outside. A sharp rain, too, was beating against the window-panes, and the sky looked black and cloudy. "'Now, then,' growled Sykes, as Oliver started up, "'half-past five. Look sharp or you'll get no breakfast, for it's late as it is.' Oliver was not long in making his toilet. Having taken some breakfast, he replied to a surly inquiry from Sykes by saying that he was quite ready. Nancy, scarcely looking at the boy, threw him a handkerchief to tie round his throat. Sykes gave him a large rough cape to button over his shoulders. Thus attired, he gave his hand to the robber, who merely pausing to show him with a menacing gesture that he had that same pistol in the side-pocket of his greatcoat, clasped it firmly in his, and exchanging a farewell with Nancy, led him away. Oliver turned for an instant when they reached the door, in the hope of meeting a look from the girl. But she had resumed her old seat in front of the fire, and sat perfectly motionless before it. End of chapter 20
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Expedition It was a cheerless morning when they got into the street, blowing and raining hard, and the clouds looking dull and stormy. The night had been very wet. Large pools of water had collected in the road, and the kennels were overflowing. There was a faint glimmering of the coming day in the sky, but it rather aggravated than relieved the gloom of the scene, the sombre light only serving to pale that which the street-lamps afforded, without shedding any warmer or brighter tints upon the wet housetops and dreary streets. There appeared to be nobody stirring in that quarter of the town, the windows of the houses were all closely shut, and the streets through which they passed were noiseless and empty. By the time they had turned into the Bethnal Green Road the day had fairly begun to break. Many of the lamps were already extinguished, a few country wagons were slowly toiling on towards London, now and then a stage-coach covered with mud rattled briskly by, the driver bestowing as he passed an admonitory lash upon the heavy wagoner who, by keeping on the wrong side of the road, had endangered his arriving at the office a quarter of a minute after his time. The public-houses with gas-lights burning inside were already open. By degrees other shops began to be unclosed, and a few scattered people were met with. Then came straggling groups of labourers going to their work, then men and women with fish-baskets on their heads, donkey-carts laden with vegetables, chaise-carts filled with livestock or whole carcasses of meat, milk-women with pails, an unbroken concourse of people trudging out with various supplies to the eastern suburbs of the town. As they approached the city the noise and traffic gradually increased. When they threaded the streets between Shoreditch and Smithfield it had swelled into a roar of sound and bustle. It was as light as it was likely to be till night came on again, and the busy morning of half the London population had begun. Turning down Sun Street and Crown Street and crossing Finsbury Square, Mr. Sykes struck by way of Chiswell Street into Barbican thence into Long Lane and so into Smithfield, from which latter place arose a tumult of discordant sounds that filled Oliver Twist with amazement. It was market morning. The ground was covered nearly ankle-deep with filth and mire, a thick steam perpetually rising from the reeking bodies of the cattle, and mingling with the fog which seemed to rest upon the chimney-tops, hung heavily above. All the pens in the centre of the large area, and as many temporary pens as could be crowded into the vacant space, were filled with sheep. Tied up to posts by the gutter-side were long lines of beasts and oxen, three or four deep. Countrymen, butchers, drovers, hawkers, boys, thieves, idlers, and vagabonds of every low grade were mingled together in a mass. The whistling of drovers, the barking of dogs, the bellowing and plunging of the oxen, the bleating of sheep, the grunting and squeaking of pigs, the cries of hawkers, the shouts, oaths, and quarrelling on all sides, the ringing of bells and roar of voices that issued from every public-house, the crowding, pushing, driving, beating, whooping, and yelling, the hideous and discordant dim that resounded from every corner of the market, the unwashed, unshaven, squalid, and dirty figures constantly running to and fro, and bursting in and out of the throng, rendered it a stunning and bewildering scene which quite confounded the senses. Mr. Sykes, dragging Oliver after him, elbowed his way through the thickest of the crowd, and bestowed very little attention on the numerous sights and sounds which so astonished the boy. He nodded twice or thrice to a passing friend, and resisting as many invitations to take a morning dram, pressed steadily onward until they were clear of the turmoil, and made their way through Hosier Lane into Holborn. 
"'Now, young un,' said Sykes, looking up at the clock of St. Andrew's Church, "'odd upon seven, you must step out. Come, don't lag behind already lazy legs.' Mr. Sykes accompanied this speech with a jerk at his little companion's wrist. Oliver, quickening his pace into a kind of trot between a fast walk and a run, kept up with the rapid strides of the housebreaker as well as he could. They held their course at this rate until they had passed Hyde Park Corner and were on their way to Kensington, when Sykes relaxed his pace until an empty cart, which was at some little distance behind, came up. Seeing Hounslow written on it, he asked the driver with as much civility as he could assume if he could give them a lift as far as Isleworth. "'Jump up,' said the man. "'Is that your boy?' "'Yes, he's my boy,' replied Sykes, looking hard at Oliver, and putting his hand abstractedly into the pocket where the pistol was. "'Your father walks rather too quick for you, don't he, my man?' inquired the driver, seeing that Oliver was out of breath. "'Not a bit of it,' replied Sykes, interposing. "'He's used to it. Here, take hold of my hand, Ned. In with you.' Thus addressing Oliver, he helped him into the cart, and the driver, pointing to a heap of sacks, told him to lie down there and rest himself. As they passed different milestones, Oliver wondered more and more where his companion meant to take him. Kensington, Hammersmith, Chiswick, Kewbridge, Brentford were all past, and yet they went on as steadily as if they had only just begun their journey. At length they came to a public house called the Coach and Horses, a little way beyond which another road appeared to turn off, and here the cart stopped. Sykes dismounted with great precipitation, holding Oliver by the hand all the while, and, lifting him down directly, bestowed a furious look upon him, and wrapped the side pocket with his fist, in a significant manner. "'Good-bye, boy,' said the man. "'He's sulky,' replied Sykes, giving him a shake. "'He's sulky. A young dog. Don't mind him.' "'Not I,' rejoined the other, getting into his cart. "'It's a fine day, after all.' And he drove away. Sykes waited until he had fairly gone, and then, telling Oliver he might look about him if he wanted, once again led him onward on his journey. They turned round to the left, a short way past the public-house, and then, taking a right-hand road, walked on for a long time, passing many large gardens and gentlemen's houses on both sides of the way, and stopping for nothing but a little beer until they reached a town. Here against the wall of the house Oliver saw written up in pretty large letters, Hampton. They lingered about in the fields for some hours. At length they came back into the town, and turning into an old public house with a defaced signboard, ordered some dinner by the kitchen fire. The kitchen was an old low-roofed room with a great beam across the middle of the ceiling, and benches with high backs to them by the fire, on which were seated several rough men in smock-frocks drinking and smoking. They took no notice of Oliver, and very little of Sykes and as Sykes took very little notice of them, he and his young comrades sat in a corner by themselves, without being much troubled by their company. They had some cold meat for dinner, and sat so long after it while Mr. Sykes indulged himself with three or four pipes, that Oliver began to feel quite certain they were not going any further. Being much tired with the walk and getting up so early, he dozed a little at first, then, quite overpowered by fatigue and the fumes of the tobacco, fell asleep. It was quite dark when he was awakened by a push from Sykes. Rousing himself sufficiently to sit up and look about him, he found that worthy in close fellowship and communication with a labouring man over a pint of ale. "'So, you're going to Lower Halliford, are you?' inquired Sykes. "'Yes, I am,' replied the man, who seemed a little the worse, or better as the case may be, for drinking. "'And not slow about it, neither. 
My horse has it got a low behind him going back, as he had coming up in the morning, and he won't be long a doing of it. There's luck to him. Hey, God, he's a good un. Can you give me and the boy a lift as far as there? demanded Sykes, pushing the ale towards his new friend. If you're going directly, I can, replied the man, looking out of the pot. Are you going to Alleyford? Going to Shepperton, replied Sykes. I'm your man as far as I go, replied the other. Is all paid, Becky? Yes, the other gentleman's paid, replied the girl. I say, said the man with tipsy gravity, that won't do, you know. Why not? rejoined Sykes. You're a-going to accommodate us, and what's to prevent my standing tree for a pint or so in return? The stranger reflected upon this argument with a very profound face. Having done so, he seized Sykes by the hand and declared he was a real good fellow, to which Mr. Sykes replied he was joking, as if he had been sober there would have been strong reason to suppose he was. After the exchange of a few more compliments they bade the company good-night and went out, the girl gathering up the pots and glasses as they did so, and lounging out to the door with her hands full to see the party start. The horse whose health had been drunk in his absence was standing outside, ready harnessed to the cart. Oliver and Sykes got in without any further ceremony, and the man to whom he belonged, having lingered for a minute or two to bear him up and to defy the hostler and the world to produce his equal, mounted also. Then the hostler was told to give the horse his head, and his head being given him, he made a very unpleasant use of it, tossing it into the air with great disdain and running into the parlour windows over the way. After performing those feats and supporting himself for a short time on his hind legs, he started off at great speed and rattled out of the town right gallantly. The night was very dark. A damp mist rose from the river and the marshy ground about, and spread itself over the dreary fields. It was piercing cold, too. All was gloomy and black. Not a word was spoken, for the driver had grown sleepy, and Sykes was in no mood to lead him into conversation. Oliver sat huddled together in a corner of the cart, bewildered with alarm and apprehension, and figuring strange objects in the gaunt trees whose branches waved grimly to and fro, as if in some fantastic joy at the desolation of the scene. As they passed Sunbury Church the clock struck seven. There was a light in the ferry-house window opposite which streamed across the road and threw into more sombre shadow a dark yew-tree with graves beneath it. There was a dull sound of falling water not far off, and the leaves of the old tree stirred gently in the night wind. It seemed like quiet music for the repose of the dead. Sunbury was passed through, and they came again into the lonely road. Two or three miles more and the cart stopped. Sykes alighted, took Oliver by the hand, and they once again walked on. They turned into no house at Shepperton, as the weary boy had expected, but still kept walking on, in mud and darkness, through gloomy lanes and over cold open wastes, until they came within sight of the lights of a town at no great distance. On looking intently forward, Oliver saw that the water was just below them, and that they were coming to the foot of a bridge. Sykes kept straight on until they were close upon the bridge, then turned suddenly down a bank upon the left. "'The water,' thought Oliver, turning sick with fear, "'he has brought me to this lonely place to murder me.' He was about to throw himself on the ground and make one struggle for his young life when he saw that they stood before a solitary house, all ruinous and decayed. There was a window on each side of the dilapidated entrance and one storey above, but no light was visible. The house was dark, dismantled, and to all appearance uninhabited. 
Sykes, with Oliver's hand still in his, softly approached the low porch and raised the latch. The door yielded to the pressure, and they passed in together. End of chapter 21《Chapter Twenty Two of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. The Burglary. Hello! cried a loud, hoarse voice as soon as they set foot in the passage. Don't make such a row, said Sykes, bolting the door. Show a glim, Toby. Aha, my pal! cried the same voice. A glim, Barney, a glim. Show the gentleman in, Barney. Wake up first, if convenient. The speaker appeared to throw a boot-jack or some such article at the person he addressed, to rouse him from his slumbers, for the noise of a wooden body falling violently was heard, and then an indistinct muttering, as of a man between asleep and awake. "'Do you hear?' cried the same voice. "'There's Bill Sykes in the passage, with nobody to do the civil to him, and you sleeping there as if you took laudanum with your meals and nothing stronger. Are you any fresher now?' Or do you want the iron candlestick to wake you thoroughly? A pair of slipshod feet shuffled hastily across the bare floor of the room, as this interrogatory was put, and there issued from a door on the right hand first a feeble candle, and next the form of the same individual who had been heretofore described as labouring under the infirmity of speaking through his nose, and officiating as waiter at the public house on Saffron Hill. "'Mr. Sykes!' exclaimed Barney, with real or counterfeit joy. "'Cabid, sir! Cabid!' "'Yeah, you get on first, said Sykes, putting Oliver in front of him. "'Quicker, or I shall tread upon your heels.' Muttering a curse upon his tardiness, Sykes pushed Oliver before him, and they entered a low dark room with a smoky fire, two or three broken chairs, a table and a very old couch, on which, with his legs much higher than his head, a man was reposing at full length smoking a long clay pipe. He was dressed in a smartly cut snuff-coloured coat with large brass buttons, an orange neckerchief, a coarse staring shawl-pattern waistcoat, and drab breeches. Mr. Crackett, for he it was, had no very great quantity of hair, either upon his head or face, but what he had was of a reddish dye and tortured into long corkscrew curls, through which he occasionally thrust some very dirty fingers, ornamented with large common rings. He was a trifle above the middle size, and apparently rather weak in the legs, but this circumstance by no means detracted from his own admiration of his top-boots, which he contemplated in their elevated situation with lively satisfaction. "'Bill, my boy,' said this figure, turning his head towards the door, "'I'm glad to see you. I was almost afraid you'd given it up.' in which case I should have made a personal wencher. "'Hello!' Uttering this exclamation in a tone of great surprise as his eyes rested on Oliver, Mr. Toby Crackett brought himself into a sitting posture, and demanded who that was. "'The boy, only the boy,' replied Sykes, drawing a chair towards the fire. "'What of Mr. Fagin's lads?' exclaimed Barney, with a grin. "'Fagin's, eh?' exclaimed Toby, looking at Oliver. "'What an invaluable boy that'll make!' for the old lady's pockets in chapels is mug as a fortune to him there there's enough of that interposed sykes impatiently and stooping over his recumbent friend he whispered a few words in his ear at which mr crackett laughed immensely and honoured oliver with a long stare of astonishment now said sykes as he resumed his seat if you'll give us something to eat and drink while we're waiting you'll put some art in us or in me at all events 
sit down by the fire yonker and rest yourself for you'll have to go out with us again to-night though not very far off oliver looked at sykes in mute and timid wonder and drawing a stool to the fire sat with his aching head upon his hands scarcely knowing where he was or what was passing around him here said toby as the jew placed some fragments of food and a bottle upon the table success to the crack he rose to honour the toast and carefully depositing his empty pipe in a corner advanced to the table filled a glass with spirits and drank off its contents mr sykes did the same a drain for the boy said toby half filling a wine glass down with it innocence indeed said oliver looking piteously up into the man's face indeed i down with it echoed toby do you think i don't know what's good for you tell him to drink it bill you better said sykes slapping his hand upon his pocket burn my body if he is in more trouble than a whole family of dodgers drink it you perverse imp drink it frightened by the menacing gestures of the two men oliver hastily swallowed the contents of the glass and immediately fell into a violent fit of coughing which delighted toby crackett and barney and even drew a smile from the surly mr sykes this done and sykes having satisfied his appetite oliver could eat nothing but a small crust of bread which they made him swallow the two men laid themselves down on chairs for a short nap oliver retained his stool by the fire barney wrapped in a blanket stretched himself on the floor close outside the fender they slept or appeared to sleep for some time nobody stirring but barney who rose once or twice to throw coals on the fire oliver fell into a heavy doze imagining himself straying along the gloomy lanes or wandering about the dark churchyard or retracing some one or other of the scenes of the past day when he was aroused by toby crackett jumping up and declaring it was half-past one in an instant the other two were on their legs and all were actively engaged in busy preparation sykes and his companion enveloped their necks and chins in large dark shawls and drew on their greatcoats barney opening a cupboard brought forth several articles which he hastily crammed into the pockets barkers for me barney said toby crackett here they are replied barney producing a pair of pistols you loaded them yourself all right replied toby stowing them away the persuaders i've got em replied sykes crape keys centre bits darkies nothing forgotten inquired toby fastening a small crowbar to a loop inside the skirt of his coat all right rejoined his companion bring them bits of timber barney that's the time of day with these words he took a thick stick from barney's hands who having delivered another to toby busied himself in fastening on oliver's cape now then said sykes holding out his hand oliver who was completely stupefied by the unwonted exercise and the air and the drink which had been forced upon him put his hand mechanically into that which sykes extended for the purpose take his other hand toby said sykes look out barney the man went to the door and returned to announce that all was quiet the two robbers issued forth with oliver between them barney having made all fast rolled himself up as before and was soon asleep again it was now intensely dark the fog was much heavier than it had been in the early part of the night and the atmosphere was so damp that though no rain fell oliver's hair and eyebrows within a few minutes after leaving the house had become stiff with the half-frozen moisture that was floating about they crossed the bridge and kept on towards the lights which they had seen before they were at no great distance off and as they walked pretty briskly they soon arrived at chertsey 
"'Slap through the town,' whispered Sykes. "'There'll be nobody in the way to-night to see us.' Toby acquiesced, and they hurried through the main street of the little town, which at that late hour was wholly deserted. A dim light shone at intervals from some bedroom window, and the hoarse barking of dogs occasionally broke the silence of the night. But there was nobody abroad. They had cleared the town as the church bell struck two. Quickening their pace, they turned up a road upon the left hand. After walking about a quarter of a mile, they stopped before a detached house surrounded by a wall, to the top of which Toby Crackett, scarcely pausing to take breath, climbed in a twinkling. "'The boy next,' said Toby. "'Hoist them up. I'll catch hold of them.' Before Oliver had time to look round, Sykes had caught him under the arms, and in three or four seconds he and Toby were lying on the grass on the other side. Sykes followed directly, and they stole cautiously towards the house. And now, for the first time, Oliver, well-nigh mad with grief and terror, saw that housebreaking and robbery, if not murder, were the objects of the expedition. He clasped his hands together, and involuntarily uttered a subdued exclamation of horror. A mist came before his eyes, the cold sweat stood upon his ashy face, his limbs failed him, and he sank upon his knees. "'Get up!' murmured Sykes, trembling with rage, and drawing the pistol from his pocket. "'Get up, or strew your brains upon the grass!' "'Oh, for God's sake, let me go!' cried Oliver. "'Let me run away and die in the fields. I'll never come near London. Never, never. Oh, pray have mercy on me. Do not make me steal.' For the love of all the bright angels that rest in heaven, have mercy upon me." The man to whom this appeal was made swore a dreadful oath, and had cocked the pistol, when Toby, striking it from his grasp, placed his hand upon the boy's mouth and dragged him to the house. "'Hush!' cried the man. "'It won't answer here. Say another word, and I'll do the business myself with a crack on the head. That makes no noise, and is quite as certain, and more genteel. There, Bill, wrench the shutter open. He's game enough now, I'll engage. I've seen older hands of his age took the same way for a minute or two on a cold night." Sykes, invoking terrific imprecations upon Fagin's head for sending Oliver on such an errand, plied the crowbar vigorously, but with little noise. After some delay and some assistance from Toby, the shutter to which he had referred swung open on its hinges. It was a little lattice window about five feet and a half above the ground at the back of the house, which belonged to a scullery or small brewing-place at the end of the passage. The aperture was so small that the inmates had probably not thought it worth while to defend it more securely, but it was large enough to admit a boy of Oliver's size nevertheless. A very brief exercise of Mr. Sykes' art sufficed to overcome the fastening of the lattice, and it soon stood wide open also. "'Now, listen, you young limb,' whispered Sykes, drawing a dark lantern from his pocket, and throwing the glare full on Oliver's face. "'I'm a-going to put you through there.' Take this light, go softly up the steps straight afore you, and along the little hall, to the street door. Unfasten it and let us in. There's a bolt at the top you won't be able to reach, interposed Toby. Stand upon one of the hall chairs. There are three there, Bill, with a large jolly blue unicorn and a gold pitchfork on them, which is the old lady's arms. Keep quiet, can't you? replied Sykes with a threatening look. The room door's open, is it? Wide, replied Toby, after peeping in to satisfy himself. The game of that is that they always leave it open with a catch so that the dog, who's got a bed in there, may walk up and down the passage that he feels wakeful. <laughs> Barney toysed him away to-night. So neat!" Although Mr. Crackett spoke in a scarcely audible whisper and laughed without noise, Sykes imperiously commanded him to be silent and to get to work. Toby complied, 
by first producing his lantern and placing it on the ground, then by planting himself firmly with his head against the wall beneath the window, and his hands upon his knees so as to make a step of his back. This was no sooner done than Sykes, mounting upon him, put Oliver gently through the window with his feet first, and, without leaving hold of his collar, planted him safely on the floor inside. "'Take this lantern,' said Sykes, looking into the room. "'You see the stairs before you?' Oliver, more dead than alive, gasped out, "'Yes.' Sykes, pointing to the street door with a pistol-barrel, briefly advised him to take notice that he was within shot all the way, and that if he faltered he would fall dead that instant. "'It's done in a minute,' said Sykes, in the same low whisper. "'Directly I leave go of you, do your work. Hark!' "'What's that?' whispered the other man. They listened intently. "'Nothing,' said Sykes, releasing his hold of Oliver. "'Now!' In the short time he had had to collect his senses, the boy had firmly resolved that, whether he died in the attempt or not, he would make one effort to dart upstairs from the hall and alarm the family. Filled with this idea, he advanced at once, but stealthily. "'Come back!' cried Sykes aloud. "'Back! Back!' Scared by the sudden breaking of the dead stillness of the place, and by a loud cry which followed it, Oliver let his lantern fall and knew not whether to advance or fly. The cry was repeated, a light appeared, a vision of two terrified half-dressed men at the top of the stairs swam before his eyes, a flash, a loud noise, a smoke, a crash somewhere, but where he knew not, and he staggered back. Sykes had disappeared for an instant, but he was up again and had him by the collar before the smoke had cleared away. He fired his own pistol after the men, who were already retreating, and dragged the boy up. "'Clasp your arm tighter!' said Sykes, as he drew him through the window. "'Give me a shawl here. They've hit him. Quick! How the boy bleeds!' Then came the loud ringing of a bell mingled with the noise of firearms and the shouts of men, and the sensation of being carried over uneven ground at a rapid pace, and then the noises grew confused in the distance, and a cold, deadly feeling crept over the boy's heart and he saw or heard no more. End of chapter 22everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.